Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and, Team House. and David Park. Your hosts. Hey guys, welcome to episode 164 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park. We got D producing, and our guest on the show is Louis Sayon. He is a veteran of Marines Commando, which is sort of the French equivalent of Navy SEALs. I hate to make a direct comparison, but it's the, it's the French equivalent of Naval Special Warfare. Um, Louis served uh, 10 years in French special operations. Before that, he was a pilot in the Air Force. Uh, multiple deployments to Africa and to the Middle East, uh, as well as other deployments around the world, non-combat deployments. And he is also an author. He has a book out. Actually, you can find the book. It's in French, but you can find the link down in the description uh, to the Amazon uh, page where you can pick that up if you're interested. Louis, uh, thank you for joining us on the show at this late hour uh, where you uh, live. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be on the show. And it's the first time I'm introducing my French book uh, to uh, an English-speaking audience. So uh, it's a bit of an experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I hope that this interview convinces people that this is, or convinces a publisher somewhere out there that uh, this is a, a worthwhile book to translate into the English language and kind of bring to the, the English-speaking world. But I... Uh, here on the Team House, we really like to talk to our partner forces, our allied special operations partners around the world. Uh, we've talked to people from, what, Denmark, the Philippines, uh, Australia, a uh, number of different places. There's so many uh, allies that we haven't had on the show yet. Ohio. We need to. Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're really excited to get this sort of unique perspective from you, Louis, and um as usual, I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about, you know, your background and, and how you grew up, what your upbringing was like, and what that path was that took you towards uh, French military service. Yeah, well, I grew up in the southwest of France. <clears throat> I grew up in a, well, yeah, more, uh, uh, I was going to say middle class family, but it was a, a family that, was, that struggled to stay middle class. So I was in between. Uh, low class and middle class, but never, 
I never lacked anything really during my education, what I feel. Uh, times were sometimes hard, but um, I, I went through fine. I did, um, I did a normal sc school. My, my school itinerary was, was kind of normal. I was never a very good uh, pupil, I think. Uh, but things went okay. I was good at sports, good at languages, and I was rubbish more or less at all the rest. But since I was, I think, uh, I think I was a, a nice kid. Uh, people, the teachers tolerated that, so that went okay. <laughs> and uh, eventually, I went into high school and uh, and I studied physics uh, because I intended in becoming a physics teacher. At first, um, I had no one, no military family, none, no one in my in my friends or family were from the military, and it's something I never, uh, never uh, thought of doing. It's it came to me at some stage in my physics um, classes, I think, and I felt I liked uh, I liked physics, I liked uh, the, the 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 world of physics. But something I hated was just sitting at a, at a, at a, at a desk, just like what we're doing now, but just with copies to, to learn lessons to learn and stuff. It was just not my thing. So I kind of got bored, and eventually I, I decided I'd go into something more active. And so that's how the military came out. Well, my first, uh, actually, my first uh, encounter with the military, was uh, me going at. At the weekends, I used to I used to go to university, uh, and then in the evenings and at the weekends, I used to go. Uh, I used to work in a fast food, and with that money, I went to an air club, and I learned to fly small aircrafts there. Um, and there, the instructor that actually taught me how to fly, he was a military professional, professional military pilot, and he flew uh, combat helicopters. And uh, he's kind of, yeah. So he was my my first encounter with a, uh, with the army, and he and he kind of pushed me, nudged me to go into the into that direction, and that kind of opened the door to me. And uh, I, by after after some time, I settled with the idea of going into the military, and I, I said, why not try that out? And and so that's how I got into the air force. So my first my first the first army I went into, I enlisted in the air force as a student pilot. An officer cadet. I don't know how you call them in, in the USA. Yeah, like a, a cadet. Yeah, cadet. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would be it. And um, so I did that for uh, three years. I got my my diplomas to become a professional military pilot. Uh, I didn't. I didn't get them all, obviously, because it's a long. It's a long course. But I had all the ones uh, uh, to that was equivalent to uh, to a professional pilot in the civilian world. So. I didn't fly any armed planes, like I didn't drop any bombs or anything, but I, I knew how to fly a plane, basically. And from there, again, I felt uh, this was interesting. I spent three years. It was absolutely thrilling. I learned a lot. Uh, it, was, uh, it taught me a lot of discipline. Uh, flying an aircraft was a bit of a big deal for me. I was just maybe 20 years old, so still a kid. And um, so it taught me a lot of things, and I learned, I learned how to become a soldier, really, and uh, that was thrilling. And uh, after, yeah, after a while, I, I just 
actually, I remember this one flight. I remember this one flight with my with one of my instructors, and it was a very long flight. It was a three-hour long flight, and um, although I was a pilot, I was in command. I remember kind of dozing off uh, during my flight because it was IFR, so he couldn't look out outside. It was all dark, and um, and I remember just going, "Oh, I'm, I'm falling asleep here." And that kind of ringed the bell. It opened up a, a sequence in my head saying, is this, you know, the exact thing you wanted to do? Like, is, is, is this going where you want to, to be later on? Can you project yourself in 30 years doing what you're doing now? Although I, was, I knew I was at the beginning, I, I had still loads of stuff to learn. And, you know, I was just at the very beginning of this. And so that kind of, you know, yeah, Got me. Uh, it opened a, a thinking process in the background of my head for 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 a bit, and then uh, eventually one day I saw uh, on the the airfield I was on. This it was a yeah, it's the Air Force. It was an Air Force, big Air Force airfield, and paratroopers came in, and they did a whole week where they they did all their jumps for the year to validate their 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 qualifications and stuff, uh, get them up to date. And very kindly, they came over to us and said, you know, uh, I know we know we're in a learning process, guys. So if you want to, you know, come hang out with us and we'll show you the gear and, you know, give you a bit of a change. Got another so, one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, th- yeah. It was a bit like that. Yeah. Bit of a trap. Um, and so, of course, I was, I was, I was you know, all over the place. I was, oh yeah, this is, this is fantastic. So I went to see the guys and they told me about all this. And eventually the pilots came to see us and said, listen, guys, we're doing, you know, jumps all week. So if any of you want to come out, come and hang out with us and stay in the cockpit during the jumps in between your flights, feel free. So I was next thing, you know, I was in the cockpit uh, with the guys, they were flying the plane and I was just observing what was going on. And eventually I go at the back at the cargo. And I see all those guys geared up with their helmets, with all the stuff, their NVGs, their guns everywhere, their shoots. The... And I remember thinking, there's this awkward uh, silence at the back. Like, it was very noisy. There was noise of the engine, and eventually the ramp comes, drops open, and there's the wind whirling, and it's cold. But the guys were very... Very, they looked very calm. They looked very confident. Uh, even this guy that was lying down on that box and that was about to be pushed off the aircraft. So I was thinking, you know, there's something weird about this and very intriguing and also very attractive. If you see what I mean, it's, you kind of feel your, your... I felt I was, I was in the middle of a, of a clan, a group or something. And I felt the bond. I felt the confidence they had. Uh, they were checking each other's gear, so I could see they were uh, very loyal to each other and stuff. They were very confident in each, o- in each other. And it kind of all, you know, sounded like very attractive to me. And and eventually, I said, right, no, this is this is it. This is that's what that's what I want to do. I want to jump off that plane. I want to be with them. So, uh, but I, that's that's how I got to 
get my mind around switching armies and uh, going from flying aircrafts to uh, basic training in the Navy to get into the to the commandos. What was it? First off, can you kind of explain how the French military is structured for us and then tell yeah. us why you chose the Navy and the commandos? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the, the French army is uh, divided into uh, uh, three big main armies, which is, uh, of course, the uh, uh, the army, or what you call the army, or we can call ground army, l'armée de terre. Um, so they lead all the land operations. Then we have the Air Force and the Navy. So that's kind of a classic three branches. And then we have the National Guard. Uh, that's what we call the gendarmerie. Uh, so they're kind of military police uh, and they deal with uh, frontier work and they do also policing. So they actually, uh, in town we have uh, police units and in the countryside, uh, it's the gendarmerie that acts. So they actually, they're actually military uh, guys and they do policing in the countryside. Well, so. There are the, actually four. So there are four great uh, branches in the uh, military, and I was in the Air Force, and I wanted absolutely to switch to the Navy. Well, absolutely, I I felt I had to go into these Navy commandos. I don't know why, because in the every branch has their own special forces units. So Air Force also has just like the Americans, the Power Rescue, uh -huh. the exact same. Uh, then the uh, Navy have Navy Special Warfare, um, and uh, of course um, the the Army has all the Rangers and the equivalent uh, in the in the French military. And I felt that to switch to the to the Navy because uh, at the time there was this TV show going on showing those French Navy SEALs uh, being trained. And they had one very charismatic, there was this one very charismatic guy uh, who was one of the instructors. And uh, he's very famous now. He wrote another book in France and, he's, and he's, he's very famous. But also, he was the only one you got to know when you were interested in special forces. So you hit special forces on the internet or you wanted to, although there, there wasn't very much of, it, the, of internet at the time. Uh, this was 2007 or uh, 2010, maybe. Uh, the only thing you got inf information from was this training of Navy commandos. So I didn't really know about power rescue or Rangers or anything else. And, uh, and also the rumor, because that's all the intel I had with rumors, <laughs> uh, was that the training course was extremely hard and it was probably one of the hardest in the army that you could, you could go through. And that, I knew, I knew nothing about this. And, and I was like, I knew no one from Spec Ops. I knew no one from the Navy. And so I just said, right, uh, sounds hard. And I just feel I have to go through this. So at least I can confirm myself to my, to my decision. And whether I get through or I break my teeth on this, at least, you know, my conscience is clear. I know where I've been. And Mike Horn, uh, you know, the, the, the famous uh, adventurer, Mike Horn, the guy from South Africa? He, uh, do, do you know about this guy? Uh, no, I'm not familiar. Not, not offhand, no. Not familiar? Well, anyway, 
he did he did the he went around Antarctica uh, uh, by foot. So he did that by foot, and he went against all the winds and tides, and all and and when people asked, they said, "Why did you go against and not with the winds and tide?" And he just said, "If I did it in the right way with the winds and tide, all my life, I would have wondered whether I would I would have managed to do it the other way around." The hard, the hard way, basically. Yeah. It was kind of the same idea here. I was going, right, this sounds hard. I could go in any, I could just, you know, enlist in any regiment in the army and just go, right, I want to do interesting stuff. Eventually be a para or something. I don't know what. Or I, just, I want to do the same thing as these guys were doing. The guys, I, I eventually got to know what the unit I was with. Because uh, at, at the time, I didn't know who I was with in the cargo of that plane. Uh, and I discovered later that they were GCPs. So it was kind of, uh, yeah, kind of elite soldiers in parachutist regiments. Um, and so I was like, I could go, I could very well go there. Mm-hmm. But since I heard about this, this training for Navy commandos, I was like, all right, I, I'll, I'll go and, and, and break my teeth on this first, and then we'll see. But I won't go through this, so why not? So that was a bit of a of the the origin of my of my decision, and um, and that was one of the first <laughs> one of my first uh, let's say bigger accomplishments uh, was not only taking the decision, uh, but also having to go uh, across one of my the worst enemies I ever went across uh, in my life. Which is the French administration, <laughs> and that was a Wait. that was a big a bit of a deal because a bit of a big deal because I had to go from the airport to the navy, and there is no there is nothing scheduled for that you know nothing's made there's no there's no pathway for that because you're trained to be a pilot people are investing in you to become a pilot, and so they expect you to you know to go from A to Z uh, in your training, but when you come out in the middle. You know, there's no one that's going to tell you, oh, that, that's fine. Yeah. I'll help you to go elsewhere. Uh, so, so I had to, I discovered how you could, you can bribe colonels with cognac and all <laughs> kind of, all kind of drinks. And eventually you get your way through. And, uh, yeah, so I, I ended up in the Navy. So you didn't, you didn't even have to, f- f- uh, finish like your full term in your air, in the Air Force. You were able to, Transfer yeah. in your service. I finished my 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 the equivalent the equivalency of my diplomas in the in the uh, civilian uh, uh, yeah in the civilian world. So mm-hmm. which meant if I dropped out, I still had my diploma to become a an, I could become an airline airline pilot after this. Uh, I could go. I could immediately switch to airline pilot because I already had all my all my diplomas. Okay, so. So I knew I had this done. That was my milestone, and from there I could switch uh, to the to the Air Force, to the Navy. Sorry. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, initial journey into the Navy and making it over to uh, selection, and a little bit about what that. I'm sure that was an enjoyable experience. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard experience, as as you know, it's a something where you you discover yourself mostly uh, you discover who you really are that's how i see it 
Uh, I ended up in the Navy and I did basic training in the Navy uh, to become a, we have the equivalent of infantrymen. It's like Marines. Yeah, basically it's like Marines uh, in the Navy. So they're infantrymen, infantrymen, sorry, that work for uh, the Navy. They keep the ships. They, they're they the one deployed uh, with the ships. Uh, and so I went through the basic training with them. And that went uh, well because I was well trained before in the Air Force. I prepared everything. I there's one thing I learned from the Air Force is uh, is how to do proper briefing, and uh, and that was uh, the only way I knew how to plan things out was to do a briefing uh, that was extensive enough so that I I I could anticipate as many cases as possible and as many situations. So I knew I was switching for the Air Force to the Navy. I knew it was going to be rough because I was going to go into basic training. And so I trained. I, I used to fly. And back from the flight, I used to go running or I used to go to the gym or work out. Uh, so I had this yeah, double schedule every week. And uh, so basic training was OK. Well, it was hard, obviously, because uh, I also physically was, I, I think I was OK. but mentally and uh, psychologically it was hard because there's a lot of learning to, to, to take in because it's basically learning infantry and it's learning how to use your guns and grenades and uh, how does a, a, a group maneuver and all kind of stuff and uh, so that was six months uh, maybe maybe left four months and then i went directly into the training although you could volunteer directly after your this four months basic training to go directly for the uh, uh, commando uh, integration course. And so that's where things kind of uh, got very, very rough. Um, so that was scheduled as follows. Um, you have four weeks uh, of selection. And these are just that's the hardest part. It's really extremely hard. It's a bit like hell week in the seals. They talk, I know they talk about it all the time, but bit the same and so it's four weeks where uh, there's you 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 have a sleep deprivation uh you're wet all the time uh you you've only have a few minutes to, to eat cold meals and you're walking all night with big bags and rucksacks i suppose it's, it sounds kind of i know on this channel it sounds kind of uh routine but, uh, well, it's but a it's similar always... to the selection course that we all go through. It's a commonality, yeah. right, across these different yeah. nations. They they put you under some stress to see what you can handle, a right? A scooch. A scooch of stress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and it was a, I thought it was quite brutal uh, because I remember having uh, psychological uh, issues after that. Uh, I remember not being able to – we were wet all the time, like we're – Physically, they made sure we had no moments uh, dry. Like weekends uh, were very were very cut up because we had to stand guard uh, on our buildings, on our training buildings. So uh, stand guard day and night. So as the course goes on, the numbers dwindle. Mm -hmm. So you end up being very small numbers, but there are still twenty four hours in the day. So. <laughs> You have to split that up. The, the pieces of cake you have to split up become bigger and bigger as your as the group number uh, diminishes. So, 
so you the weekends we spend standing guard, and when we're not standing guard, you can you can take time off, and uh, you can't you can leave the base just for the one wash, one washing machine. Uh, but that's it. Uh, so it's kind of harsh for the four weeks, and after that, uh, it kind of the 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 training become, becomes a bit more technical. Uh, so you learn all the guerrilla tactics and all, and that's uh, that's two other months after that. And at the at the end of that, uh, you get your 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 beret, your green beret. So that's three months all in all, and then you go into commando, you in uh, commando, an operational commando mm -hmm. unit. Dur during your training uh, process, I. What what else does those three months consist of? I mean, are you learning underwater demolitions, diving? Um, oh. or, no. No, no, no. It's very orientated on guerrilla warfare, mm -hmm. uh, land and uh, nautical warfare. So we don't do any diving okay. at all. Uh, we, at the end of the training, we do, at the end of the three months, uh, we do an extra month of uh, parachute training. Uh, so we learn how to uh, do parachuting, and uh, and then you've extra courses that add on uh, later on, like demolition. Or mm -hmm. we do a bit of demolition. We do a bit of all during the uh, the, the the two months of training, uh, but just a bit of all, a bit of shooting, a bit of uh, guerrilla tactics, a bit of demolition, but no underwater. Okay. Uh, they they have you working with the uh, zodiacs. Yeah, exactly. It's more more of zodiacs and uh, nighttime operation, nighttime raids, mm -hmm. and uh, helo raids, and uh, what else? Very cool, uh, Louis. I got to take uh, just a minute here to give a Please. shout out to the sponsor of our show. It's Bubs Naturals. Bubs is a uh, company that works with the Glenn Doherty Foundation, who is a Navy SEAL, uh, a really good guy who um, sadly died in Benghazi, Libya, when the CIA annex was overrun. Um, but Bubs makes a number of health food products uh, that they, they continue to work with the foundation. Uh, I've used this protein for many years. I love the MCT. I mean, the, everything's great, but the MCT uh, powder is fantastic. Uh, they also, this is a new product they have, these gummies, uh, apple cider vinegar. Which I promise they don't sound, they don't taste like vinegar. They taste like normal gummies. They're delicious. Help with your digestion. And the uh, protein is interesting because it's flavorless, completely flavorless. You mix it in with coffee, soft drink, whatever you want. Um, and so you go to bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code TEAMHOUSE, and you'll get 20% off your order. So that's bubsnaturals.com. Use the code TEAMHOUSE to get 20% off your first order. We're really happy to support this company and work with them. So go check those guys out, please. All right, thank you, Gooey. Um, no problem. What, uh, which, which operational detachment are you assigned to? And actually, we should take a little pause here, I think, to talk a little bit about the history of your unit. Um, if yeah. we could get into that a little bit um, to give people an idea of where these guys came from, what their origins are, and, and sort of what their mission is. Yeah. The uh, French commandos in the Navy, you can break them up in four uh, main units, five main units, actually. And they all bear the name of a uh, deceased uh, commando uh, that either died during Indochina or in Africa. Uh, so the four, they all have 
four very famous name, French famous names, sorry. So there's Montfort, Trépel, Jobert, Pinfantino, and Hubert. And they all have a, they all, they all used to have a very specific uh, application. So Montfort used to be demolition and mortars and uh, long range shooting. So that would be uh, their specialty. Um, Trépel and Joubert uh, would be kind of the same. They'd be assaulters. And uh, Panfantigno would be recce. So they'd go in for um, uh, reconnaissance uh, techniques. And then you have Hubert, and they do all the uh, sub-aquatic uh, warfare. Is that correct? Sub yeah, sub, or, sub, subsurface. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, subsurface, yeah. So they were specialized in subsurface. So now we kind of have mixed them all up because of the operational needs. Mm -hmm. uh, we have so much need of uh, human resources on the battlefields uh, that we kind of had to mix everyone up and say, you know, we, we all do a bit of all now uh, because we couldn't afford having, you know, just two units deployed at the time. So now they all deploy at the same time. Well, one after the other, but we have, we have to have them. They all, they all got sucked into counterterrorism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But we still, we, they still keep, they try and still keep a bit of a specialty uh, in each one of them, especially in Uber, since they are the only ones that do uh, subsurface uh, actions. Um, so, yeah, but all in all, we kind of mixed now and we kind of do a bit of all in every unit, although each unit is still uh, is still independent from uh, from the others. And, and, and then which... we've... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We have two extra units that have added on with with years uh, that are Kiefer and Pochardier. And Kiefer and Pochardier are two units that um, one of them is uh, for all the vectors. So either parachutes or uh, ships, ribs, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Kiefer is a, is a unit that uh, has, it's, it's a pool of uh, specialists. So all the K9, uh, electronic warfare, all these guys will regroup in Kiefer. And so they'll we'll, we'll go and, and grab one of them uh, for a specific mission or whatever. That's, that's how it works. And which one were you assigned to? So I, I did time in, in Trippel and Joubert, and they're both uh, soldiers' uh, commandos. Because I, I like uh, banging doors in. Yeah. <laughs> and what, is, what is the sort of the operational history of those two units, uh, if you could tell? I mean... they, they were created during uh, uh, the Indochina uh, War that was in the 50s. Vietnam. Um, yeah, Vietnam. They, um, they used to be uh, river units. And they used to be do raids. Uh, they, uh, they they used to have boats, rib, big ribs, and they used to do raids all along uh, the the rivers that went into Indochina uh, to kill and capture basically uh, units and overrun outposts, enemy outposts. Uh, so it was very early. They would they had acquired a, a bit of a commando style um, because because it was they had to be fast, they had to be brutal. Uh, in areas that were usually possessed by the enemy, mm -hmm. or they were, over, yeah, they were held by the enemy, and uh, and all the uh, most of the the knowledge the commando uh, got 
from Guerrilla Warfare comes actually from the British, uh, because uh, all that warfare we used uh, comes from the Second World War, where the French troops, uh, when the German uh, armies overran France, part of the French troops uh, disengaged France and went to other allied countries. And some went to uh, England, where they learned all the SAS techniques, and they brought them back to France at the end of the war. And from there, we kept the, these techniques, and we developed, we developed them and used them for Indochina War, Algerian War also. Didn't, uh, wasn't Jack Cousteau involved in setting, uh, helping to set that unit up? Well, Jack Cousteau did a lot in uh, uh, subsurface activities because he's actually the guy who invented uh, the, 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 the scuba. The yeah, the, yeah, the scuba the, system. The, yeah, scuba system. He, yeah. he invented the scuba system. So that was a major, major asset for uh, for divers. Uh, but I think the main, the guys that were the, the most, uh, the leaders in the area of the uh, subsurface uh, warfare were the Italians. Yeah. Uh, Italians are fantastic. The, uh, the mini divers, subs. Combat divers. Yeah. And I, I think we, we transfer some of the knowledge from the Italians also for the, for the combat divers. Fascinating. And then uh, you get there in 2010. Had, yeah. the, had these assault units already been deploying uh, on the war on terror or other French military missions? What, what had they been I up arrived, to? I remember arriving at my unit. Uh, first, uh, first big events that took place uh was a ceremony so we all came out with our kids our brand new kids and i was lined up for the ceremony in my with my units with my new units and the ceremony was a uh, uh was for the, the arrival of the oh i'm losing my english i'm sorry that's okay uh, of the of the coffin of, of okay. one of the guys that were just deceased in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, and his teammates were there, and they were also crippled. Uh, they were alive, but crippled. And I remember my, my first ceremony was this coffin coming in. So I was barely arrived, and I was, like, facing with uh, what was going to happen to us. Uh, so, yeah, it was a bit of a... Afghanistan was a big thing uh, for uh, French units. And I remember... All the all the changes that that involved uh, because uh, before Afghanistan we didn't have as uh, we had the odd mission uh, here and there but we didn't have uh, things as intense as people could find them in, uh, in Afghanistan. I didn't do it in Afghanistan, so these these are story I heard from. But uh, I noticed a real change between the beginning uh, of my my time in the units and the end where. I remember training my, my first counterterrorism trainings where uh, you we used to to stack up against buildings when mm -hmm. we had to clear rooms mm -hmm. and um, we you know throw the grenade open the door and we'd run in and people would rush in to take angles mm -hmm. and I remember thinking oh this is rough you know and when when you when when uh, one of your your senior 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NCOs would catch you uh, thinking. You go, yeah, you know, well, this is the real life. You know, um, we know the real deal is the first guy, second guy that goes in, they'll probably, they'll probably die. So but that's the deal. And I was kind of going, oh, wow, that's really weird. I remember taking shots, uh, you know, with the yeah, training rounds, taking shots and my, and then, you know, hiding and then going, well, I can't go in. Like, people are shooting at me. And my NCO is going, what the fuck are you talking about? Just push in, you know? And right. I kept saying, push in. And I remember going, oh, this is rough. I don't get this. And eventually, with, with time and all, all these tactics moved around. Yeah. Uh, and that was, to me, the consequences of Ga- Afghanistan and, uh, and the guys we lost. And I saw it in this room clearing, which is kind of the, the pinnacle of the <laughs> counterterrorism units, yeah. is, you know, clearing rooms. I saw the difference. And at the end, we, we started, you know, clearing the room from the outside yeah. and picking, you know, opening angles from the outside and all. And I saw, I saw the mindset totally changing between the beginning where we had to push and push all the time. And at the end where, you know, you'd stop yelling and, you, you know, you do things nice and slowly and take time and open up discreetly and try and be, and made, made a lot of sense. But then I was, you know, I was just, I was the new guy. I couldn't say anything. And, and that was perfectly okay. But I felt the change over time. Yeah. And yeah. eventually on deployments, I discovered also why you don't just run into a room yeah. with a guy waiting for you with a PKM. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And Makes yeah, sense, you know? Yeah. And we, we've talked about that with people before, too, because Jack and I both saw it also where they're, you know, it, it, the uh, in the late 90s, like the the hostage rescue model was the model that everybody was using, which is get it. You're trying to save a hostage. So everybody gets, you get all the guns in the room at the same time. Mm -hmm. Everybody dominates their, you know, their, their, their point. And, you know, and you collapse your vectors and this and that, but when there's no hostage and the bad guys knows that's your tactic and they set up bunkers in the rooms and other floors and everything else, Mm -hmm. people start to learn that lesson quickly that, Maybe we should go back to World War II style clearing where we clear the, the room from outside the building. When uh, I'm, yeah, dating, I'm, I'm yeah. d- dating myself a little bit, but when, when I got to Ranger Battalion, it was 2003. And I think our CQB was still a lot of, you know, lessons learned from Somalia, from yeah. Mogadishu. And yeah, you're, exactly as you described, Louis changed drastically yeah. very quickly too yeah. over a couple of years um to um i don't want to get into too much detail about ttps maybe they still use some of them but a much more organic way of clearing structures um and as you point out it became uh, we we accepted i think uh that this w- there is an operational art to this right mm-hmm. it's not just oh, about yeah. it's not just about kicking in the door rushing in 
you look, feel things out a little bit. Yeah. Take a little look. See. If you can look through a window and shoot somebody from outside, then do that. Yeah. If if you can try the doorknob and the door opens and it's quiet and maybe you just go in under night vision. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to also, blow, blow every door down. It also it makes a lot of sense, like in real life. Like uh, if 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 people shoot at you with the seven six two rounds, mm -hmm. it's bloody. I mean. I've seen people duck and dive for, for you know, you're not standing up and, you know, holding your, <laughs> yeah. they used to say, orient your, 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 your uh, plate carrier right. uh, towards the guy. Right. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> right. oh, I'm going to duck and dive and move around. I'm not going to stay there. Right. And so that it made sense in the end, but yeah, so that's, that's a bit of an evolution I, I saw through time, but uh, that was Afghanistan for me. It was, this big change from doing stuff with a bit of, you know, everyone's ideas coming in and, and still happens, which is fine. But then eventually having, you know, the roughness of, of reality come in and step in. And from there, you're like, OK, all right, this is the real stuff. And, and this first ceremony for me was was a bit of my eye opener and saying, OK, this is not just, you know, this is just, just training or Everything they taught me in training is not just gobbledygook just to, to, to look good. No, it right. is real. And what, what was it like when you showed up to your first uh, maneuver element? I mean, if you could tell us a little bit about what that was. Is it a platoon? Is it a squad? What, what, what a is the? It's, it's a, a group. group. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a group and we're 10, yeah, around 10 guys. A group is around 10 guys. And uh, I was new guy in there and uh, it was rough. Uh, it was rough uh, because it was uh, it was the way it is. It's uh, very strong hierarchies. I think uh, they're mostly fair, but they are very rough. So mm -hmm. you can't you know you can't mess around, and it's the real deal. So and they're all Af they're all uh, Afghanistan uh, veterans. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and all the guys were coming up with these Afghanistan stories, and I was with all the other new guys. We were like, oh god, this is serious, like you. Uh, you know, what they tell us about the stories, uh, they tell us like with, uh, in a very, in a very uh, non-important way sometimes, like saying they don't want to brag. And so they just come up with the story during an exercise or something. So, oh yeah, guys, remember this can happen because they happened to me. And, uh, and when they say that, like our eyes light up when we're like, ooh, ooh, this is the real deal. So it was kind of exciting also and you know to have these guys around but it was rough because you know they they were they were expecting the best out of us and and in the end you know after thinking uh, you know with time I realized that 3 months of of a selection and training process plus a few extra uh, training uh, weeks after that is very little mm -hmm. uh, for a commando um since there's a lot of knowledge to gather. There's a lot of things to, to, to update all the time, to train for. So, yeah, the days were, days were long. And uh, as a new guy, it's a, it's a, yeah, a bit of a big piece to, to, to bite. So Was there a formal? So, yeah. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. No, 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 no. Well, oh, yeah, you're, you're going to ask, is there a formal way to, yeah. uh, for people to come in? Yeah, yeah. There is, and you get, you get a bit of a... a, bit of a uh, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, like an indoctrination uh, type of thing? Yeah, yeah. And a bit of an indoc, yeah. 
and uh, so you've to you know do maximum press ups, push ups, and they give you loads of stupid tasks and uh, kind of to kind of try and see where your limit is mm -hmm. as a as a teammate. So that comes up very fast, and uh, you've loads of yeah physical and technical. Uh, um, technical tests they put you through that are totally informal and they do this you know after uh, after most of the senior NCO have left the junior NCOs come over to us and they give us extra tasks to do and extra tests to go through um, like we call it the gun salad uh, it's where you know take yeah. variety of guns and Mix them up in a box and NVGs on, and here you go, trying to put <laughs> them back together and all kind of stuff. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a bit, there's a lot of that. Yeah, and I, I feel also that has strongly diminished uh, the intensity of it. Uh, thought that it was very rough, but it was, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough, but now it has diminished a lot since there's a, a very strong turnover in the units. Uh, because of all the deployments to Africa, Middle East, and and, and elsewhere, uh, since people are deployed very often, there's a bit less of a of a of this this indoc when people come in, because people don't have time to mess around with the new guys. Yeah. Right. And we want the new guys not to be able to do this gun salad properly with NVGs, which makes little sense. Right. We want them to be. Uh, able to, to to go to the range more often and be able to be operational as soon as possible. Right. Uh, because we need them on the field. We need them on the battlefield. Uh, so yeah, that kind of has diminished. And I think it's it's good. Uh, it's good because I I believe in in well, I, it's good and it's not good, of course, uh, because it's good in the sense that it's good to be operational fast and to be professional fast. That I approve of. But then. The indoc is also useful, I think, to create bonds before going uh, to war. Having bonds with your teammates uh, is something that's interesting mm -hmm. because it created a lot of uh, bonds with the new guys. All the new guys we used to group together and you know help help us out each other, and so that was that was very useful and it helped a lot uh, create bonds with each other that we still have today. So what about? What Around what year was it that you what did you arrived? I arrived in the in the in the units in two thousand and ten, I think. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. So was Afghanistan still very hot? Yeah. I know very hot. But you Yeah. Okay. You know, tell tell us Mali, about Go ahead. Uh, the thing is we we were at the end of Afghanistan for France. Mm -hmm. And three years later, Mali opened. And Syria right afterwards, so there was a there was an escalation. Uh, as soon as Afghanistan closed, boom, we have Mali open up with the very first missions uh, to stop Taliban, uh, not Taliban, jihadi guys, uh, get grip of the main country, of the main towns in in Mali. So we had to intervene there, and then uh, we had to intervene also in Syria with the Americans in 2015. Is that? It? Can't remember exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. So well, that so so it all it all it all carried on, and so we kept gaining. Uh, uh, you know, we kept going forward, and it was, 
and it was a lucky time to be in the units really uh, because you got to deploy in 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 good it used to be good deployments like you used to get to see stuff and do stuff which was which was very interesting tell tell uh, us about when you got the word came down of your first deployment um and you know how did you guys get situated get you know what was the train up like to get ready for that deployment and then you know heading overseas for it yeah well we um in the you know, i know in the navy commandos we have a, a bit of an issue with, with deploying because uh, we love doing extra training before we deploy as more than anyone else <laughs> we have to we have to train more than anyone else any other spec ops units uh, we should do more and so we would do uh, a main training where we would do all the renewal all the updates of all the qualifications we have uh, whether it, whether it's um land nav, uh, sea nav, uh, or jumping, or shooting, or whatever it is, demolition, anything. We'd get everything up to to top notch, and then we'd go for training, for extra training, for the deployment. So that would would be maybe two to three months beforehand, before the deployment. So we'd do deployments, we'd do training that's just only orientated to, to wherever we're going. Uh, so if we would work with helos on the deployment, we'd try and work with helos beforehand in the same way. Which, uh, we'd go for people uh, or our instructors would, would uh, set up scenarios that would look like what we're going to do. And so that would, that would get us prepared for the area. And then we'd have a bit of a, uh, uh, we'd have a, a bit of leave and then we'd deploy uh, on, on, on the mission. And so it's a, we knew some missions were, were you know more more dangerous than others, but we deployed all the same uh, with the same preparation every time. I mean, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So, yeah. So, whereabouts generally were you going on the first deployment, and what was the mission? Uh, first deployments were were Africa, and uh, some of the missions it was counterterrorism. Uh, but oriented to, uh, to uh, there was uh, there was both both counterterrorism and anti piracy. Uh, so we did a bit of both. Uh, we prepared for both. Um, but then the most interesting ones were a couple of years later, uh, where we deployed more into Sahel, and that was purely counterterrorism, and they were the most interesting to me because. Uh, we're very lucky to get onto real combat missions where you know it was, it was really rough, and we'd get you know, yeah, we'd have proper orders and proper uh, leaders that would push us into combat. Uh, that was really really interesting. Was the French so, public very aware of what was going on in the different parts of the world, and that you guys and and other French elements were involved? Yeah, yeah. People are, are, are quite aware because um, uh, French people tend to have a special attention uh, over Africa. Uh, Africa used to be half, maybe yeah, one third or half of Africa used to be French. Uh, they used to be French colonies. So a lot of African people, a lot of African countries still speak French. And uh, uh, so we still 
keep a lot of links with these people. And uh, so whenever we get deployed over to Africa, people have a special, you know, they, 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 yeah, they're interested to know what's going on. Whereas whatever, whatever, whatever's happening in Yemen, no one cares or, <laughs> or elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, there's a special problem with Africa. And then Middle East also, uh, people are interested in, you know, they, they are aware because they're still close. It's all, it's kind of around the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. So I feel there's a, there's a sense of closeness on what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, people were kind of conscious, although uh, these recent wars weren't wars like uh, what France has known in Algeria or Indochina, uh, where we lost something like 50,000 or 70,000 men. Whereas here, like I remember in Mali, we lost uh, 53 men, which is nothing like compared to, to, to these other, other conflicts. Although they are very close in time to us. Uh, so there's also a kind of a sense of importance uh, in, in the awareness they have of the conflict. Like they know there's a conflict going on, but since there aren't very many people, you know, very many French dying, it was the same in Afghanistan. Not very many, I think we lost something like 80 men or something. And so since there aren't, there aren't very many people dying over there, well, French people dying, not, I think they're not very concerned about the, the conflict. Whereas Indochina and, uh, and Algeria, that was, that was massive. Like right. Everyone had someone from their family dying or being injured in, in, in Algeria and in Indochina. And so tell us about that first deployment. Uh, what, what was it like for you? Were there any interesting operations that kind of stand out in your mind? Like maybe your first combat operation. I mean, you must remember... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember very well, and I remember uh, it was. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very rough. Uh, I remember the very first one. It's a yeah, it stands out in my mind because uh, it was a funny operation. We um, we had intel coming in. We were on standby for uh, to capture some some guy, some jihadi leader somewhere, and so we were on standby with the team. And the guy, uh, the intel came in and said, uh, right, there's a, there's a bunch of guys uh, with a few pickups resting uh, beneath uh, trees in the desert. And we would like to go, uh, we would like you to go and check it out. So it's that's kind of a routine mission in Sahel and all these regions in Africa and so you get to uh, you just go and check on people and often it's not very much because you know the way uh, the 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 jihadi guys you go after the real hard ones are kind of scarce there aren't very many most of them are just combatants but you know they'll switch sides they'll change jobs, they'll be a jihadi <laughs> combatant for six months, then they'll go, he'll go back to trafficking gold or something. So you often fall, you often get these guys that are either trafficking something uh, or are actually uh, uh, jihadi uh, fighters. So we leave for that mission and we had a few, maybe an hour or two of, of a helo flight to go there. And I remember asking how many guys there are and if uh, there are any weapons just the basic you know uh, questions that we ask before we leave 
the guy i remember <laughs> my 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 ceo saying uh, uh no one no we don't know how many there are and we don't know if there's any weapons just go there and we'll see so that's <laughs> kind of tricky because uh, it's all well, it's kind of exciting because you're like right anything could happen you know uh, everything could go sideways so this is very exciting but uh that's the exciting part but the kind of uh, the other part that kind of that's kind of concerning is that uh you haven't a clue what you're going to deal with so you don't know if you're supposed to bring a a, a rocket launcher or ro a grenade launcher or uh, any demolition or you don't know what to bring and the problem is we have these helos <laughs> We fly in French army. We have these very special helos. They're very good for flying into mountains at the top of mountains. They can go very high because they're very high quality suppressors at the front of the engine. So they compress the air very well. They hold records actually for, for flying at the top of mountains, but in the desert, <laughs> it's, it's a scam. They, it's 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 a scam because uh, the heat, is, the temperature is so high, mm -hmm. uh, they they consume too much fuel, so they can't. They have a very low cargo, so that's an extra stress on us. What because, what is uh, what is the helicopter? Is it is it the Lynx? No, it's not the Lynx. It's a it's a Puma. A Puma. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are different versions of them. We have a very. I was on the very modern version, which you know, gunners on the sides and stuff. But the guys would go like, uh, it was a. I, I remember, I remember uh, later on as a team leader I, with the same helos. I remember having to having to uh, fight with the pilots to get that extra five kilos on uh, onto the cargo, and I remember we in the team we used to have to drop all the water we had. Right. Even in desert operations, we we drop all the water we have just to get the extra extra commando on the the lightweight guy. You know, the one that was sixty kilos. <laughs> uh, we'd get him on, and we drop a few mags and a bit of water, and we'd get this extra guy on. Oh my god! So it was very uh, it was very complicated for us to to, uh, to 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 get to know what gear we had to bring and how much we could bring. And so, well, so for for instance, I wouldn't bring. Uh, when I became team leader later on, I I would not use any machine gunners anymore because uh, they were too heavy. Ammunition was too heavy, and also they were not precise enough. So I'd 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 drop out all the machine gunnery uh, and take all the only sharpshooters. So I'd have two sharpshooters in one group uh, because I felt they were more useful and I could I could make more out of them. Uh, than a machine gunner. Like a machine gunner can't clear a house. <laughs> or, or I can. He can yeah, yeah, they, yeah. In a, in, a, in a harsh way. Right. Uh, whereas my, my, my sharpshooter, if he has a short gun, I, he can clear, he can actually clear rooms if he has to. So it was a bit of a negotiation every time we left. So this, this went on for this mission. Negotiations. We didn't know what we were going after. So we didn't know what kind of gear we we had to use so we had the standard kit we'd always use with a few grenades a bit of all we'd leave and uh and i remember this was in in full daylight uh, which was uh, pretty unusual because uh we often 
uh, use, of course, uh, nighttime operations uh, in Hilo because um, the drones would see things much clearer uh, because of the heat contrasts. Um, and uh, and also, we'd have NVGs. The enemy wouldn't have any right. or very little. So, so. Uh, combat superiority would be for us at nighttime, although but this mission was taking place at daytime because they just felt we we had an enemy that was very um, volatile. Can I say that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they they the guys at the, at the sound of an engine they'd pack up and leave and 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 drop guys off during their pass. So we'd lose everything at the end. There would be anyone left. So we had to act quick. So they decided to deploy us uh, in daytime. So we all went on to the helo. And we didn't fast rope over the area. I remember before reaching the area, uh, you know, I try and listen at the comms and the and the aircraft, know what's going on. And I remember this uh, uh, the chattering going on and trying to realize how many guys there were. And at the beginning, I thought it was something like three or five guys. But then at some stage, I hear uh, three or five guys, one or two pickups. One or two technicals, and uh, I hear motorbikes leaving the area. I hear guys running off the area, and I'm like, "How many guys are there? Like people? There, there are people everywhere." In in my comms, I only had to figure what was going on because I couldn't see. So in my comms, I was like, "That's a lot of people, you know, <laughs> running around." And these, this was the drone uh, transmitting all the information to us on the helo, and maybe. Three minutes before landing, I start to hear gun gun sounds in the in the in the comms, and I hear, and I'll see this afterwards because afterwards I I took up the footage from the helos to see what was going on, and there was this scene I was I'll remember all my life. I saw a Rambo scene in real life. We had what would usually happen with the helos is that with the the transport helos we were in would be preceded by uh, the Tiger Hilo, which is the equivalent of the Apache, Mm -hmm. maybe, yeah. And so he had had all the missiles and rockets, and and he'd especially have this 30-millimeter gun that's linked with the helmet of the pilot and stuff. And so he was starting to shoot at people downstairs. And I remember his camera pictured this guy. He was shooting in the sand and in the bushes so it was you know makes a lot of dust and i remember this guy popping out of the dust with a heavy machine gun a pkm and the band that was that was dragging he was dragging a long pad of ammunition on the ground and he just took the gun at the, and he, from the hip he started shooting at the helicopter you know legs wide open in the middle of nowhere going everywhere to the helo to the helo so that was kind of my my first encounter with uh, with with uh, with combat with this guy Rambo running out and shooting at heels with PKM. So eventually, uh, that guy got shot very fast. <laughs> although he ran a bit because uh, because the pilots would shoot and they would do massive uh, massive uh, smoke area, loads of dust dust area, and so the guy would hide back in, and so the pilot would lose him, and so that that. That took a bit of time to resolve. 
but eventually, so I was, I was hearing this. I was going, oh, the stuff is going on. And so eventually I reach my, uh, I look out at the helo and I see the, the, the helicopter shooting at the ground. I'm like, all right, this is the real deal. But then also I'm thinking, ah, you know, it's fine. You know, we'll land the helo. We'll have done the work and we'll just have to, you know, grab a few prisoners or whatever's left of pieces and bury them and boom. And so I'm thinking, you know, ah, at the set, on one side, I'm going, ah, he's going to kill everyone. We're going to have no one to deal with. And uh, on, the other, on the other hand, I was going, at least, you know, he's dealing with the, with the Rambo guy, which is fine by me. Right. And so eventually we, we, we hover around this big kind of forest. And uh, we land nearby uh, because we insisted on landing. Uh, we hate, my, my, my team used to hate fast roping. Fast roping is crap. I do not like it. It's fancy. It's good for the movies and stuff. But I like a good, hard <laughs> landing with the helo where you just walk off. That's the best, the best uh, thing ever. Anyway, so the guy nicely lands us uh, near the forest. And he's supposed to land us. We told him, like on the briefing, uh, we did a very fast briefing with the pilot. And he was told to, to land us behind this, uh, this hill. There's a hill, a sandy hill in between the forest and our, drop, and our landing zone. So at least we're covered and we can climb up the hill and have, you know, uh, we can see what's going on in the forest and we can shoot people if we have to and stuff. And I'm, I, I stick my head out of the helo to see what's going on. And I'm like, where's the hill? And I see the helo is, is starting to, you know, to hover and to, to, to incline to get the land. He's going, to, he's going into his landing uh, uh, movement. And I'm like, there's a problem. There is no hill. Like between the enemy area and the landing zone, there's just this very wide area with nothing to cover us like nothing like it's it's just sand and dust and eventually i i i i discovered why this happened is because when we briefed we briefed very fast on a piece of satellite uh, picture and the satellite picture there was this shade of a hill that wasn't a shade it was just a the ground that was a funny color and we thought the funny color was a shade so we were like oh well, we'll be safe behind the hill no hill <laughs> and the pilot and the pilot going ah oh, this is the gps point that's perfect i land them on the gps point without you know thinking right the enemy's right there and right anyway so we're landing. It's too late to, to, to warn anyone, you know, don't, don't drop us here. It's too dangerous. We're not right next to these guys. One of them was Rambo. Who knows? Maybe there are <laughs> other Rambos in there. And so he drops us off. And I remember very well, he drops us off. We all walk out. And I'm like, ah, this is fine. It'll, it'll do. And I can see the forest uh, ahead of us. It's maybe four, maybe 500 meters away. And I can't see anyone because it's dark. You know the way in the distance, beneath the trees, you can't really see people because, uh, because of the shadow, and you can hide in the shadow very easily. 
And so I, I, I kneel and wait for the, you know, to the dust to fall down from the hero, the hero leaves. And as soon as the, the hero leaves, massive gunfight. It starts shooting from the whole of the forest lights up and we're all pinned down. In the so open. Like all lying down for our lives in the middle of this no man's <laughs> land. And they're just shooting at us and we're like, there's nothing to do. Like we're, we, there's no, nowhere to hide. And I'm like checking around people and people are looking back at me going, what the, <laughs> where do we go? And so eventually we just think, you know, if we, if we're going to die here, we may as well die running or doing something. So eventually we step up with a few NCOs, we step up and we start rushing to the forest to the other, the extreme end of the forest. So not facing us, but the extreme end on the side, thinking if we reach the forest, at least, you know, we're hidden into it and at least they can't see us. So they can still shoot at us, but they won't be able to see us anymore. So we run across these 400 meters. It was the longest 400 meters I ever run in my life. <laughs> uh, and we get into the forest and that's where it got really, really uh, complicated because it's a, it was a very bushy forest. So you couldn't see, uh, you couldn't see further than maybe three to five meters. And, and we knew there were people waiting for us and there were numerous uh, fighters in the forest. And, and I could hear the chatter on the, on the radio and I could hear that the helo couldn't see the guys because of the heat contrast that was not strong enough mm-hmm. since it was daylight. Right. It's like, I can see uh, heat spots everywhere, but I'm not sure. I don't know what it is. And he wasn't going to shoot every heat spot he saw because, you know, he has that much of ammunition and also we're here and, you know, things are going to get complicated if he runs out of ammo. And so we start, you know, we gather all around as a group, which kind of go around the end of the forest and we say, right, this is, you know, classical infantry work. We're going to line up and just so that the helo knows that the line is us. And then we're just going to move forwards, and uh, that's what happened. We just moved forward. It was, it was the the most stressful hunting party I've ever been to. Was, there were people everywhere, shooting at us, hiding. It was. So yeah, we got a we got. I got face to face encounters with guys. I came up onto guys like that. it was it was that rough. Like like uh, you guys, your 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 group was bounding forward towards this tree. Yeah, line. we're just. Bounding forwards, uh, we're going fast. We 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 said right. We're having a fast pace at this because uh, we're not just you know we we're trained for it. We know that we know how to do this. We know we should check. You know, uh, we're not going to call each other saying, "Oh yeah, we're uh, I'm ready." You can you cut? No, no. We're going to check each other very yeah. fast, and then we're just going to move very fast because we don't know what's ahead of us. And I don't want people ahead of me maneuvering faster than I am. So I'm going to maneuver fast so that I can cut into the maneuver, whatever they're doing, because they know we're here. And so eventually we start kind of, you know, walking very fast into the forest and bouncing from tree to tree, from bush to bush. And I remember this moment where, so we, yeah, we start seeing our first dead people. And I remember crossing these, these dead guys and eventually, uh, 
yeah, we get to this point where one of my teammates, we regroup to clear a small, small area, maybe five, yeah, 10, 10, 10 square feet, maybe a little more. And so we, we get into the area and, and we get pinned down by these two guys hiding in a, in a kind of a, a hole behind a bush, very, very dense bush. So we couldn't see them. We couldn't see. We saw, I just saw the smoke and the, the, the fire, but I couldn't see where they were. So we all started shooting at the same area. And I remember very clearly the helo saying, uh, I am drifting right above you. So he's, the helo was in this special maneuver where he's not driving forwards like this one, where it's the way you actually, you usually see them. He was tilted sideways and drifting like this. And he was doing that so that he was as slow as possible, as stable as possible. And he was actually hot, you know, going as slow as possible so that he could help us as much as possible. And these guys were did a, an absolutely fantastic job because they were actually exposing themselves a lot by doing so. Um, and I remember this guy saying, uh, we're right above you. Uh, call us out. We're, we're ready right now. Call us. And we were we were being shot at and we didn't know uh, where the shots were coming from. We could just see it was kind of this area. We weren't sure. So we we're shooting everywhere. And so I, I remember calling into the radio saying, Okay, we're good. You can shoot. And just calling my two teammates or nearby, telling them just to move out because we were, uh, and I and I and I, um, I know that we weren't very far because I, I saw the footage of this afterwards. We're ten meters away from these guys, and the danger close for the for the rounds are mm -hmm. seventy meters. And so we were kind of I, I kind of call in the, the the shot, and I was like. Did I do the right thing? <laughs> as soon as I hang up, I'm like, uh, is this going to fall onto us? And so he shoots the, the, the hole where the guys were in. And eventually that gets them, oh, more or less, I suppose. We end up flicking a few grenades in and then moving around. So we get to see uh, the hole. And so the, guy, the guys were in peeps, but it was, it was a, bit of a, a bit of a stress. And we carried on like that for uh, maybe a all in all, it was maybe a kilometer long or 800 meters long. Uh, and it was, it was really, really stressful. And at the end, there were like over 20 fighters. Holy <laughs> shit. And you guys went in with 10 or, or less? No, we were 30. We were 30. We were 30 guys. 30. Okay. We were 30 guys. But like, I remember uh, we were just my team in the forest because uh, some of the guys raced off as we were. Uh, as we were oh, uh, so they went after the, the other group. Some went off, and so other other guys had to go off and, when, and leave. And so to the point where we didn't have any, I didn't have any uh, soldiers at the end. We didn't have any teammates. We didn't have enough teammates. So I had the guys from the helo, uh, from another helo, come in, drop the the oh, the sharpshooter that was in the helo out, and come and help us out, help us out because we didn't have enough guys. Mm -hmm. to, to deal with all the, 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 the fighters we had ahead of us. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty rough. And, uh, yeah, you, I remember you, we – yeah, well, anyway, so there you go. No, you, you, you mentioned that uh, it was too – like it was too hot. They couldn't get a, a temperature differential for the flare, yeah. Uh, yeah. for the infrared. How, how hot was it when you guys – like 
It was around 40 degrees. Around 40 degrees? Celsius. Yeah, so about 104 Fahrenheit. Yeah, and that's very close close to body temperature. Body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius, so 3 degrees Celsius. Yeah. You're hiding in a bush. Yeah. uh, You can't really tell. And were you guys out there with no water? Yeah, no water. Oh, my gosh. Like, we couldn't afford it. <laughs> it was too far out. It was like, ah. But I, then it was, went fine because the helos, you know, came, came in and out. And uh, after that, so after that, we had to deal with all the, the you know, the, the aftermath. So we had to do the battle, the, the uh, BDA. BDA, the, yeah. Battle, yeah. Like search all the bodies it. for intelligence yeah, and yeah, all yeah, that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That took us another 24 hours, no, 12 hours, something like that. And it, all, all in all, we spent 24 hours on the area. So uh, uh, it was a long day, and uh, helos kept coming in and out, so you dropped us off a few packs of water, so it was fine. But uh, it was a bit of, yeah, a bit of an experience. Um, uh, and it was, uh, it was good fun, though. We lost, like, we lost no one, which is absolutely Amazing. amazing yeah yeah amazing I, I i still don't know how uh it happened but uh, uh i remember getting this one guy he was actually ambushing another teammate like i remember moving around a bush and seeing this is the funny part i <laughs> i remember going around a bush and another of my teammates was on the left and he was going uh, going to face that very bush i was i was i was cornering I just check the bush and move around, uh, move on, and then something goes. You know, there's a light that flicks on in my lo- in my head, and I'm like, the bush had something weird in it, and there was a surface that wasn't right. And I remember going, there was a round surface in the bush, and there was our spiky bushes uh, with no leaves, just spikes, and, and like there's something round and spikes. It was wrong, and then I I came I came back. A few steps, and I'm like, "That's an ass." <laughs> <laughs> I could see the ass of this guy sticking out at the back of the bush, and I remember going, "Ah, ah. you can't see me." So I just walked up to him and I shot. Uh, I didn't shoot his ass, but I, I shot beneath the ass so that you could feel the bullets flicking the sand onto his ass. So he just turned around very slowly with the, and he dropped the AK. But I remember my teammate was just was just going to face him, and he was waiting for my teammate. Shit. So, yeah, that was lucky. So that was how lucky we were. So yeah. You, you took the ass man prisoner. Yeah, yeah. It's a big guy. I remember. I remember taking him. I'm like, ooh, you're a big guy. And <laughs> uh, and uh, eventually, he turned out to be the kind of team leader for the for the guys, because all the other guys were either much younger or much uh, skinnier. And he was kind of thick, and uh, yeah, it was a big guy uh, with, with a nice watch and stuff. And, and so, yeah, uh, he got a. <laughs> he he was. Uh, he, you know, you can do a, a tactical questioning. Yeah. yeah, TQ. Yeah, yeah. So he he got a, a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> so how yeah. did you guys manage? Uh, EPWs during this like live firefight the these these enemy these prisoners how did you manage them during the because you're still moving 
like yeah through the, through well, the objective, that was right? a bit of an issue yeah well i had to drop people off i had to drop guys off like as we were moving forwards uh like if two guys surrendered we'd have to go uh, you're staying with them yeah and one guy had to stay with them yeah so at the end i remember i remember one guy he was surveilling like seven guys <laughs> holy shit <laughs> He was like, he was with his gun, scanning seven guys lying, seven adult males, uh, on the on the floor with his gun. And I, I I think since they were they had their their, their we call them a puke. No, it's a prisoner under control uh, set. Kid. Yeah, yeah, puck. Yeah, puck. Yeah, yeah. And they all had their puck on, so they didn't know there was only one guy looking after the seven of them. So it was lucky. So it, it, we're lucky one of them didn't take it off and go, oh, he, there's only this small guy looking yeah. after us. But uh, yeah, so it was it was very tricky, very tricky. And and we actually stopped uh, the action because I, I won, we didn't, I kind of, I remember clearing bushes were two of us at the end. Yeah, right. And I'm like, right. dude, I'm like, I was telling the other guy, like, we've got to stop. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're, we got yeah, to clear the whole of Africa here. Right. Uh, reconsolidate. Yeah, we had to regroup and reconsolidate and reorganize ourselves because you know the way in the desert, there are people everywhere. Like sometimes, I don't know if you've had that feeling already, but like sometimes you feel the desert is absolutely empty. And and when you stop in an area for, for a bit, and like, you, like when you're on a, uh, Reiki mission, mission or something, you 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 end up discovering like there are people everywhere. Yeah, like there are kids coming out of bushes, and and this guy walking around a plastic bag in the middle of nowhere in flip flops, and that was kind of the, the situation. Like we we cleared our area, and and we could still see guys over there. Like, and we didn't know whether they were uh, 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 jihadi combatants like leaving the area or or. Uh, villagers from a nearby area coming in because they heard the sound and uh, and they, they saw the hitos and they wanted to, they were just curious to see so you kind of I, I remember it often it happened on a on, on several occasions we kind of had to stop and say right they're not they're not with the the, the situation because that's what the that's what guerrilla uh, fighters do they mix with the population right right. So they just, you know, they they uh, at some stage they just they just dilute themselves in the population. So you know you need to set a barrier to know where you stop, uh, and you know you end up you know violating families, homes, and and <laughs> making them prisoners. And right. like you're like, what am I doing? Like these people have nothing to do with what what we're dealing with. Right. So it's kind of. And everybody right. owns an AK, and so if somebody comes outside their yeah. house with an AK, it's like, are they just coming out? Are right. they coming out to join the fight, or are they just trying to see what's going on? Yeah, exactly. So sometimes, yeah, yeah kind of. But I remember saying, you know, <laughs> it's not that. I think I think I, I was I was in an, in a an adrenaline rush, and I was very excited, like uh, for having survived up to now, and. Mm -hmm. And all the gunfight and stuff. So I was like, I was, I was like my teammate. My teammate was hyped. He was, he was like, he wanted to clear the rest of the whole fucking area. And I was like, yeah, I want to too. But 
We're just the two of us, man. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, if you fall on anyone else, like we already saw what away. happens to Rambo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. So this well, this I, first mission was pretty eventful, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. It was the first. This was the first really eventful mission. Like we had a few missions before, mm -hmm. but it was, you know, no massive gunfight or anything. Was, right. And was uh, oh, looks like. We may have lost Louie. Uh, we'll see if he jumps back in. Um, probably just a little glitch with the internet connection. But folks out there, um, thanks for joining us today. And if you want, you can like us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're out on all this social media stuff. And down in the description, there's a link to our Patreon page if you want to get these episodes ad-free. Um, there's a ton of bonus, there's a ton of bonus content, uh, on our Patreon. Like, uh, you guys pay our rent. We appreciate it. You buy us the booze. So hook some brothers up. Um, uh, Louis is, is he'll, he'll have to dial back in in a second. So next week we're going to have Nicholas Moore on the show. He was, uh, I believe a two seven five Ranger, uh, went up to platoon sergeant. I haven't read the book sergeant. yet. I'll, I'll yeah. by them. Yeah, um, had a pretty extensive career in the Ranger Regiment. So we'll have him on next week. And then uh, we got an extra episode coming up in October with uh, James Laporta, who's a uh, investigative journalist with the Associated Press. Louis. And I'm back. All right, I'm thank sorry. you. I don't know what happened. Hey, hey technology. Um, it's not so bad. Um, so any other um, like highlights from that deployment that stand out in your mind? Well, yeah, there was this. Uh, what I what I liked with my with my job. This is another mission I I loved. Is is um, are the missions where we came in at night mm -hmm. uh, to get these guys in the houses and stuff. That was or in their tents and stuff. I loved the way you we could switch from either being having to be ultra violent, like and very aggressive. Uh, and in these other missions where we barely spoke during the mission, like everything was just, we communicate with attitude. We just moved around very swiftly in the houses and stuff. I remember this one time where we got into a house. That's a great memory. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking for this, uh, uh, this guy, he's a, he's an indicator. He's a, <clears throat> I, we know it's a guy who gives intelligence to uh, this terrorist group. And we need to capture this guy because we know they're preparing. Uh, we got the intel that this guy is preparing to, kidnap, uh, is preparing to, to kidnap uh, Europeans in the area. So we have to intervene and grab this guy beforehand. And we have these two buildings. Uh, and we're, we're two teams on the job, so building A and B. It's in town, and we drive into town. Uh, we park the cars, we walk a few hundred meters in the darkness, and there's no word spoken. And uh, uh, I take building uh, A with my team, and the other team takes building B. Um, and we walk into this house when, you know, we... We get the, the green from Paris, and they tell us, okay, you can go in. So we, we step in, and what I loved was that we had a, 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 a senior NCO that was uh, 
he was uh, uh, yeah he he was linked with the CEO. Uh, he was very experienced, but he was a bit of a, a bit of a bouncy guy. Like he was very excited, very 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 easily. And I remember him being being very hyped for the mission and kind of pushing us and uh, and kind of roaring, uh, calling out orders very loudly. Where whereas we were in the middle of a town, and I was like, in town, I'm not at ease because uh, we had no helo, we had just one drone, extremely high, uh, that couldn't see very much, um, no helos to stay discreet, and so I knew that. If things have to go sideways, we're a small team, so we're not going to do very much. Like we're not going to survive very long. So we're better off like not doing any sounds, not you know, real commando style, really. Um, and and I remember having this guy, and he was just annoying me because he was jumpy and he was moving. Sio Sio is a great guy. Sio was as he was a really calm guy. And everything was really easy and soft with him, but this NC, the NCO he was linked with, uh, that was over us, that gave us orders. He was just a pain because he was moving around all very tight and stuff. I was like, calm down, you know, this is gonna go fine. We're just grabbing this guy and leaving. So anyway, he gives us the green and like he roars it. He goes, oh yeah, guys, we've got a green, and we're just outside the door. Follow me, and, and you will survive. Yeah. Iron Mike. <laughs> Get to the chopper. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, um, we've we've reached the, the, up to here, and we have had no radio conversation, like no radio exchange with the rest of the team, because we have this policy where we say, uh, I used to be the radio guy in my team, and I know radio always works. Uh, during training and before we leave, and as soon as we right. need them, not anymore, right? That's a classic. So I, I used to say, you know, no comms. Comms only if there is a problem. So, you know, call out people if there is a problem or if there's something you can't deal with at your level. Uh, and so I remember just before reaching the door, we left a guy in the alleyway. That was a bit of a... <laughs> there was a bit of a story, funny story also, because... We had a sniper, uh, two snipers covering the roofs, so they had to climb onto the roofs. As we were, we were walking to the door. These snipers had to walk to the roof, and there's this alley where we say we said right, we'd have to drop off the ladders in case the door wouldn't open, and so we'd have the ladders handy if we had to climb into the compound, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, blah 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 blah. And I remember there was a bit of a race. To leave the ladders because the last one to leave the ladder would have to stand well, uh, 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 stay posted in the alleyway, and that was the, the, <laughs> the thing no one would want to because everyone wanted to be in the house, right? Course. Right, right, and so he was the, the last one, so there was a bit of a race, I remember, to leave the ladder and you know <laughs> go stack up and not be the one at the end that had to stay for in the alleyway. I'm saying this because the guy in the alleyway uh, got, uh, eventually, during the operation, got two guys uh, walk up to him in the middle of the night. Oh, this was a nighttime operation, so two guys walk up to him, and, and he eventually just pushed him away with his laser. He didn't even shout out at them. He just lasered them and said, you know, I'm armed. I, I look dangerous. I am dangerous. Just stay away. And he didn't even calm that. So he didn't even 
tell us what was going on because he he just felt this he was in control, and as long as he's in control, he's not interfering with the with the team leader and going to annoy the team leader. Saying, oh, by the way, I'm in control here, so don't worry. Right. Like from A to Z, if you're in control, then don't say anything. It's just if something goes sideways, then we need to know. Mm-hmm. And if shots are fired, we'll know because we'll hear them. So anyway, so. No comms, and we get to the door. He's stuck up at the door. Sencio shouts out, and we walk in. And I love the way we walk into this place because we walk into the first area, and then we realize the whole of the family was lying outside in the compound. Yeah. Uh, in the courtyard. Courtyard, thank you very much. And we didn't have any other options than just walking over them. And so we actually, at first, I remember walking over them and then turning around and, you know, working my NVGs and going, right, what did I walk over? And then eventually discovering there was a whole family there and they were still sleeping. And the whole team walked over them and they were still sleeping. Oh my! And eventually we get around the courtyard to this other room, clear the area, clear the buildings. No one there. Fine. Last, last building. The guy's there. We grab him. And I don't know how we managed to not make him cry or no one shouted or anything. And we grabbed him and we left. And I remember my NCO having to calm down the MCO that was roaring in the comms that he had the jackpot and da 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 So eventually, you know, we're like, yeah, we'll talk about this later. Just <laughs> yeah. leave. And so we eventually leave. And I remember being the last guy to leave. And walking over this family, I was still asleep when we left. So crazy, yeah. And that was just fantastic. It was a great memory for me. It was like, yeah, no, no, no one knew you were there. Yeah. No shots fired. It's good, good operation. No, it's a perfect yeah. operation. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, yeah. It was good fun, and you know, we got the right guy. Yeah, luckily, and uh, and so, and we just left, and we had a bit of an encounter at the end on the expo uh, because we came in with. Um, civilian vehicles and uh, leaving we came across uh, the local army that didn't know we were there and we didn't know they were there so in the middle of the night we came across these 10 technicals facing us <laughs> so that was a bit of a stress uh, took us maybe a minute or two to figure out who was what but uh, at first we all just burst out of the vehicles and we spread out onto the onto the road like ready to shoot and so that was a bit of a, that was the, the most, yeah, that was really frightening for me because like the, the, the 50 cows were all aiming our way and all. I was like, ooh, this is, if this goes sideways, it'll be rough and it'll be fast. Yeah, and, and it's tough, uh, you know, because a lo- I'm imagining a lot of those places, the local forces, the official forces are using the exact same types of vehicles that the bad guys the exact are. exact same, yeah. The only thing we only realized they weren't the same when we really got close to these guys and saw they had uniforms on. And from there, we're all right, okay, you're your local army, fine. But until then, like they're with technicals and they're you know with the with the lights blaring your way, you can't really see. You can only see shadows move yeah. around the vehicles. And you're like, whoa. But yeah. yeah. There's something you brought up that I wanted to um, follow up on, Louis. You said that. You guys were up to the objective area, and you had to get the green light from Paris, which yeah. is interesting. So, so there was the special ops command in Paris had to bless off, like, like they had the final, 
order before you were able to actually hit the target. Yeah, because there was a special target since the guy was going to supposedly kidnap these European guys. Mm -hmm. We had intel from uh, the French uh, secret services that said, grab him now. And this is... Interesting. Uh, yeah, this is very important. Grab him before he, he, he manages to, to carry on his, his deed. So, uh, yeah, we had to wait for Paris. We often have to wait for Paris... Uh, for, for guys, yeah, in part, we don't have very much maneuvering space. Uh, I know a lot of, I met a lot of rangers and the guys have a lot of wider span of actions they can do uh, without having to wait for uh, Washington to say yes or no. Well, that in my in my point of view, uh, whereas we have a lot of restrictions up to the door we have to wait for Paris to say yes yeah that's 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 tough i mean i i understand that there has to be command and control but to the point where it's like right you're on the yeah. door ready to yeah. breach that's yeah yeah, yeah. hey yeah. Louis, i just doesn't happen I, all the time but mm -hmm. yeah once in a while you get this yeah. that, that's got to be frustrating on for uh, as an operator on the ground like you're in a village and and i think for people who might not be familiar with this scenario is that Villages can come alive and and oh, yeah. you can get like swarmed from mm. all sides once they become like it, if it's three in the morning and you're sneaking up on target and that call to prayer goes off <laughs> like, you know, it's going to be a bad night. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember um, one of my NCOs when I came into the team he told me about the story in Somalia. The guy uh, was escorting a. Uh, uh, legion convoy they had this uh uh these uh, uh they weren't tanks but they were uh, uh, yeah uh, troop transport vehicles armored troop uh, uh, transport vehicles and so he was on one of them with a legion uh team and uh one of his mates uh, another commando he was on the other another vehicle ahead of him and uh, they arrived on the, they were on dirt roads and they arrived on the roundabout and engaging in the roundabout, the first vehicle went round and to the left or ahead, I can't remember. And he went round and he crushed on its way, the vehicle crushed one of the local vehicles and it crushed, it, it, it basically drove onto the, the whole of the back of the, of the body of the car. The driver was safe, was okay, was untouched, but the car was smashed. And the roundabout was very large. It was a very large roundabout. So by the time he crushed the guy, he was quite far away from the other vehicle. And I remember him telling me it was the, the fright of my life. I, I, I feared for my life that day because there weren't very many people around. But since the guy in the car came out of the car and started a row with that 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 armored mini v tran uh, tank or transport vehicle that had stopped to check if everyone was okay, he'd started a row with them. People flocked mm -hmm. from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like he said, it was. I never saw that. And he, he told me. I remember he told me the whole uh, Legion team they packed up into the vehicle in a, in, in a minute. In a few seconds, they realized people were coming 
from everywhere with stones and sticks. Yeah. And so they closed everything and he ended up on the top of the roof of the vehicle mm-hmm. with people all around, mm-hmm. like, you know, pushing and moving the vehicle and stuff. And he, I remember him telling me if I'd shot one shot right. at these guys, I would right. not have had enough bullets for every one of them. On right. Me. Right. And he had it all, his whole kit. And yeah. it's like, if I shoot one of them, I'm dead because they'll swarm me. Right. So many of them. And in a sec, they came out of nowhere. Like yeah. The row attracted everyone. Everyone started swarming the vehicle. And he and- said, I was so impressed. I knew if I couldn't shoot, I had my gun and I kind of, you know, was pushing people away. But I know I, sh- I, I, would, sh- I would shoot one bullet if right. I was dead. And, and that problem often gets compounded. It's like you said earlier, how insurgents hide within the civilian population. That if you get one person in that crowd that actually starts shooting at them, how do you identify that person? How do you eliminate that person? How do you protect yourself without, uh, without it becoming an international incident? Louis, let's, uh, I, I mean, the, it, it sounds like you definitely got your feet wet on this first deployment. Walk us into deployment number two. What were what was the mission you were set you were going into this time? What are some of the the high points uh, that you recall from that deployment? I I mix I mix missions up, yeah. From different deployments, <laughs> yeah. Between two and three, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of mixed them up. I remember this one mission. It was kind of like the, the this first one in the forest, but it was very, it was very rough. Um, we had kind of the, the same situation where uh, we were called upon this small small group of guys under the forest, and uh, so same kind of situation where day in in broad daylight we were sent in helos onto this group of men in the forest, and I remember first time. I had a really strong encounter with this. Uh, I kind of, uh, you know, I was pumped and I, I, I was excited and stuff. By the time I got to this one, I kind of, my, my, my mind had changed. You know, I, I felt we were maybe going to have to, we were maybe going to run out of luck and, uh, and, and maybe one day I was going to get shot at the end. So I don't know if you know what I mean. It's, when you go through uh, a few, uh, a few, uh, um, uh, yeah, a few battles like that. Well, not battles, but they're, they're firefights. Sure. Uh, you, you feel an untouched. You're like, all oh, right, I'm invincible, actually. And then arrives a stage where you see you. Oh, well, hang on, am I really invincible or? Or, I'm, or am I just going to run been out of lucky. luck? I've been lucky up to now, and now I'm going to run out of luck, you know? Yeah. And that was kind of a, that mission was kind of that like that. I, I, I kind of felt, you know, we're running into something that's going to be very rough. And this time, maybe someone's going to, it's going to die on this one or, or be injured. So, yeah, it was, it was very stressful. And uh, it was kind of like last time uh, we arrived on the, on the, on the, on the ground and very fast we got engaged in these bushy forests that are very rough uh, for infantry because you can't see very far and i remember i remember very well being uh, fixed in the middle of the forest by this one guy and he got you know, maybe 20 of us 
uh, in the forest, two teams, and he he held us off for I don't know, I don't know how much time. I don't know, you know, uh, it was maybe twenty minutes, half an hour. He held us off like this one guy, and I and I still don't know to this day how he did it. He was in a bush, uh, and he he started shooting at us, and we were taken in turns uh, mm-hmm. between the teams on raiding his position. So um, at one stage we'd stop because we got we, we we understood he was shooting at us, but same time as the other story I was telling you about, we couldn't see very well from where we were shooting, but we know it was very close. Um, but this time we couldn't see the fire from his gun. We couldn't see the, the, the dust and stuff. And so we stopped. And eventually we told the other team, like, we're, we did, we'd already killed three guys before that. So we were already, you know, stressed and, and, and perspiring. And I was, everything was very stressful. And I remember telling the other guy, all right, if you want to give it a try and, you know, rating its position, go, go for it. And I remember them walking up, yeah, walking up, shooting everywhere, every bush, and walking back with the guy still there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is going to be rough. So eventually, I remember this is one of my, my, my school book uh, moments where uh, I saw every caliber being shot at this guy. We, shoot, we shot him with 556, 762. Uh, we shot him with, we sent, we, we, we swung loads of grenades at him. 40 mil, 40 millimeter. That's where, that's the day I discovered that outside it's crap. Inside yeah. it's great. Outside yeah. it's crap. And with the, the drone, not the drone, the Hilo 30 mil, 30 millimeter, 30 millimeter, sorry, from the drone that didn't do it. Uh, and so at one stage I even thought, and I, we didn't do it, but I even thought of, setting fire to the whole place. <laughs> I was like, how long is this going to take? And eventually, uh, I don't know how we got it because we just shot everything we had, literally at this one guy. Um, and it was, yeah, I got loads of lessons learned from this. Uh, I discovered that if you're well hidden and you're really well ambushed, you can, you can stop 20 guys and a helo and a drone and everything you want. And I remember this uh this teammate he was on my left uh i had no grenades left and i told him you you chuck your grenades and he grabs his grenade and he sends it with a he was really excited to send his grenade and he sends it to the to, to the other team <laughs> <laughs> so the grenade lands live in the middle of the other piece oh no i have to fall back even more so the grenades blows off and they then then they come back. I remember this other guy he had from the other team, he decided that the twelve gauge was gonna be his main weapon. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know sometimes when you spend too much time on standby, you end up having weird ideas. It's an artistic like, oh. choice. Yeah, yeah. Who are you to it's limit like, his creativity? Right. <laughs> and so he decided twelve gauge was fine for out outdoor combat. And uh, and so it was main it was main gun, and I remember him shooting everywhere, like going boom, 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 and stuff having no effect. Right, absolutely no effect. And also, he thought it was a great idea not to have all his bullets in a in a pouch or something, but have them a bit everywhere, you know, on these straps 
So he could have them a bit everywhere, on his chest plate, on his arms, on his forearms, and he had them everywhere. But the result was that when they did the maybe second or third uh, attempt of going up to this guy and running back, eventually he ran out of, he didn't run out of ammunition, but he had very few left because from running up and running back, they all popped out from the straps. And so they were all over the place. But they look great in photos, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the photos, they look great. You have them everywhere. It was absolutely <laughs> When we did the BDA, I was like, oh, God, they shot a lot of ammunition. And I was picking them up. I was like, this is full. Oh, and, this is full. Oh, and this is full. But anyway, so, yeah, it was a funny story. And we ended up uh, on a very dramatic situation on this one because uh, I remember after, after dealing with these guys, there were a bit less, maybe less than 10 guys. The very last one was a kid. And uh, he was a kid, but I was obsessed with this last one because we knew he was hiding at the very end of the area, this bushy area. And he wasn't moving. And I was... I was... I suppose I was kind of scared and uh, and also or maybe very, very cautious on this last one because he wasn't shooting at us. And I knew he was there because we'd seen him. We'd seen him maneuver behind his, 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 his teammates. And since he wasn't shooting at us, I just thought, you know, he's waiting for us. And he has this belt, this uh, exploding belt on him or suicide vest on him. And I was thinking, what do we do? Like, do we... Uh, or I it was all I was all I had all these questions going on. Sure. As we were slowly, you know, moving on to him, I was like, "What's going to happen? Is he going to blow up? What do I do if he blows up? How much time do I have, uh, you know, to uh, to extract people from here?" And you know, we think about the, your ten minutes platinum golden R. How far am I from the And so. I'm very. I'm. I'm thinking about all this, and at the same time, we're shooting everywhere. I remember the tension was as high as, as I've ever experienced it, and we, would have so many encounters, uh, close call encounters, that I remember uh, guys that were on my team that were known to be kind of cold blooded and very, you know, uh, that had a very even temperament. Uh, they would start shooting at all the bushes. Yeah. Like at literally all the bushes. Yeah. Like we come across an area, they'd go boom, 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 boom. Next area, boom, 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 boom. Every bush. And so that's when I realized, you know, people were all, we were all in the same state. We're all amped up. Uh, and so we arrive at this last guy and we know he's here. And eventually we run up onto him. And I'm thinking, what do we do? And we see he has this. We discover as we were moving around to him, and uh, this is, I'm breaking this down into, into sequences, but the whole movement took maybe a few seconds. But you know, it, it was, everything yeah. was very clear in my mind. And I can break down the way we, we walked up to him, we moved around, we shot him because it, there were, he had a gun laying on his lap. And as we move around, because we can only see the bottom of him, and as we move around, we see he's, he's showing his hands to us. And I come across his gaze, and he's kind of, it's a kid, like 15 years old. And I see him, and he's kind of imploring him. He's kind of imploring. He's, you know, it's pitiful. 
And he's looking at us with his hands up and he's full of, and I can, he's not full of blood yet, but I know he's, he's wounded and it's going to, not going to be long. And I'm kind of, do we finish him? And I, there's this big question, you know, you're, you're like facing him and he's looking at you and you're like, ah, so eventually uh, we jump onto him and, and we make sure he doesn't have a suicide vest. So uh, I, I kind of grab his torso and try and uh, feel his shape and I feel nothing. So I'm like, oh, like this is a relief. This is probably the last guy and there's no suicide vest. I'm like, oh, we survived this. This is fantastic. And I put my hands out. I'm like, he's, he's wounded. Uh, I can, there's loads of blood on my hands. So I'm like, ah, he's not going to make it. And that's where there's a whole situation that comes up where uh, we're three of us on this guy. Uh, we, after we've searched him, uh, I tell one of my mates, like, yeah, go, go on. To, uh, no, at the time I was team leader. So yeah, one of my, still one of my mates, but one of the operators, I go like, you know, go, go put a layer strap on him or a tourniquet or something. Just, you know, uh, what I say is, um, we say uh, to technicum. It's a like a tourniquet, a tourniquet. Yeah, but we say, no, we say just deal with him. Instead of saying we deal when it's uh, medical, we say technique. Uh, we say uh, do your technique on him. Okay. Basically. So I go, you know, do your technique on him. Uh, but anyway, I'm like, I'm saying that so that the guys have a clear conscience. And when he dies, they say, at least we've tried something, you know. Oh, well, he's dead. But at least we've tried something. But what happens is this uh, senior NCO, that's the CEO's, uh, as in the situation, he's with the CEO, the guy that works with the CEO, comes up to me. And at that stage, I'm team leader. And he comes up to me and says, uh, we're not dealing with him. Leave him. And I'm like, I let two of my guys on him. And the area is clear. I know. I knew this is the end of the area. After that, it was desert, like it was open, open right. area. So I knew there wasn't any danger close. There could have been further on, but I knew there was a helo around, a two helos around, and they were looking ahead of us. So I knew the area was was under control. And so he he kind of was uh, slightly uh, behind the action, so he didn't really well see what was going on. And when he reached me, he was like taking decisions very, very fast. And I felt, I knew he wasn't uh, clear with the tactical situation. So I just tell him, you know, I'm not leaving that guy. He's been technical, you know, he's been uh, dealt with. So I'm, I'm leaving him there. So we get into a bit of a row, you see, mm -hmm. because he, I feel, and I, I'm not, might not be right, but I feel he wants to be, you know, the big dog saying, oh no, we can leave that guy. He's an right, enemy. Right, Let right. him bleed out. It's fine. I'm like, whatever, you know, you haven't deal with this guy, eyes in the eyes. And, you know, uh, you haven't have, had his blood on his hand and he's a kid. And, you know, like, at least give him a chance. Yeah. Since, alors, I'm saying that also. And at the same time, I have in mind that, as I was saying, we're a very lightweight here. We don't have very much gear. Uh, we have one, one uh, medic and... Uh, and one nurse so they have gear on them but i own i know they only have a certain amount of kits and so if we keep this guy alive 
they're going to break out a kit for him. So that's another kit. If anything happens afterwards, right? I'm not going to have able. Uh, I'm not going to have for one of my teammates or one of my operators. So it's also a kind of hard decision because I I started dealing with this guy. I could have very well left him and said, you know, right, leave him there. He'll pass out and eventually die uh, from from blood loss. But I said, you know, deal with him and put a tourniquet on and it's fine. But what happened was the the nurse rushed out from the bushes and he grabbed a hold of the situation and he actually saved the guy. <laughs> and so this was kind of, I, I didn't expect that because by seeing the guy, I just thought, you know, there's at least a liter of blood out. He, he bled out at least a liter. And I was like, he's second minutes, if not seconds away from passing out. And for, and the guy actually saved him to my surprise. And so that created kind of a, an innuendo because the guys afterwards were like, why did we save that guy? Like he had a PKM on his legs. Right. Uh, he obviously had uh, t took shot at us and you saved, you, you gave orders to save him. Right. And at the same time, I was like, I wasn't just going to let him bleed out with nothing else to do because we were actually going to just sit there and wait and we're just going to wait with him at, you know, there. I mean, there are situations where, you know, we acted differently because, you know, in the middle of combat, it's the middle right. of combat. Yeah. Right. People die. People die. It's the way it is. Right. But this was the end of an action and I knew it was the end and it was the end. Uh, and so my decision was, was kind of hard. And uh, at the same time, I feel it was the right decision, but I understand that, you know, people said, oh, I wouldn't even now today, some, I, I talk about this situation in the book and some of the guys, uh, I, some of, you know, ex commandos sometimes discuss this and they, they go to me very simply, like I would have left them bled out. And yeah. I to I understand totally the decision. Yeah. It was a hard one for me and an interesting one also as a human, like I was, I was, it, it educated me a lot. It, it, I mean, you've both between like the desire to set fire to the area that the guy was in and this situation. It's interesting that war, you know, like war movies are interesting and, and there tends to be like a black and white in them, but there are so many nuanced decisions mm -hmm. in combat that people who either, and, and like you say, some of the guys who said, I would have left him and you don't fault yeah. them for that. Nobody would fault for that. No. People, people no. listening to this might say, oh, you know, you said he was a kid, but kids get recruited into combat. It's horrible. It's, it's despicable, but a kid can kill you just as easily as an adult if they're using a PKM or an AK or something else like that. And yeah. now it, it's, I think it was a good decision to make, though. In the end, I mean, if if you were still in combat, it is yeah, what it is. What right. it is, you got a job to do. But you knew you were at the end yeah. of the your your yeah. limit of advance. Yeah. Well, it was a it was a it was a bit of a. I took a chance also because you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not a, a, a. I can't see in the future. Right. Right. I, yeah. I could have been wrong. Right. Like it might have been another situation, and we might have been projected to an, a, a very similar situation. I might have got a, 
uh, wounded in the team and maybe we didn't have enough kits for him in the end. So I would, in the end, I would have saved an enemy fighter. Right. And one of my guys might have bled out and that would have been my responsibility and my, my fault. Right. Louis, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, you, you mentioned to me that there was an operation you were a part of where you had to respond to an American mission. Um, and, yeah. and kind of follow on to the aftermath. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your, your role in that and, and how it unfolded. Yeah, it was a mission where um, American troops got ambushed uh, and uh, there were rangers, a small team of rangers that were with local, uh, local army. Uh, special forces. Lo lo special forces? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and um, yeah, but the Americans were Rangers, right? No, the Americans were Special Forces, uh, Green Berets. Oh, they were Special Forces. Yeah, okay, yeah. sorry, sorry. But uh, anyway, so yeah, they, they got ambushed, and uh, we were called onto the onto the the rescue mission. It was funny because I remember uh, being on a on a on a French base nearby, and. Uh, and seeing a helicopter from another unit facing ours taking off in a rush. And I remember running to the CO going, something, where are we going? And he told me, we're going nowhere, nothing's going on. And I'm like, something's going on <laughs> because the unit facing us is moving. So eventually he picks up the phone, makes a few phone calls. And next thing we know, we're in the helo leaving for, we don't know where, we don't know how much time, we have no idea. And we're just flying for seven hours in the helo with a refuel in the middle, in the middle of nowhere. I don't even know where we were. Like, I know we crossed borders. No, I didn't even know we crossed borders. We went from Holy one country shit. to another. And I, I, I didn't know where we were. We landed in an area. Uh, my CEO uh, was too busy on the radio. And I was with the rest of the team. And we were like in the middle of nowhere in a kind of a camp uh, with locals. And um, and it was maybe, yeah, it was, it was the middle of the night. And I remember very well, we always, we didn't have anything to eat or to drink. And we're just laying in the in the in the dirt on the ground, waiting for orders. And uh, these two Americans came out of nowhere, uh, CIA guys with a pickup, and uh, briefed us on their warehouse. And so we eventually to where their warehouse was, and so we eventually followed them up uh, to the warehouse, which is the the the, the shittiest place. Uh, shittiest outpost I've ever I've ever seen in my life. It was a, <laughs> it was pieces of wood stuck together with a kind of a metal roofing. It was crap, and uh, I remember very well walking into what well, was the kitchen, and also where they'd stored all the MREs, and seeing this fifty-year-old, uh, normal-looking white guy. Uh, curved up uh, on the floor, sleeping with no blanket, no mattress, nothing, just on the floor of the kitchen. And 
going, oh, that's that's awkward. And crossing, going to the next room, which is the CO where everything was laid out. And uh, well, the, the uh, operation center, sorry, where everything was laid out with comms and a few computers. And I remember there was, there was this uh, spec ops guy uh, that we had, uh, I'd met on our base already. He was there also. And we're trying to realize what was going on. That's where I realized I changed countries. And uh, eventually the guy from the kitchen came in and I realized he was a helo pilot, uh, a contractor from, uh, uh, for, the, for the CIA. And, um, and so we were kind of uh, settled there to organize uh, and get organized on what we were going to do to retrieve this one missing uh, spec op American. Um, and uh, the guys told us they, they'd, they'd, man uh, they'd managed to bring back most of the guys, apart from this, the, the guys that were dead uh, from the ambush and this one guy that was missing. Uh, and so we were very concerned for the guy that was missing. I, I saw the guys uh, who came back from the ambush and they were, I was two, I think two things uh, struck me. The first one was the shock I could read in their faces. They were like in a state of shock. Uh, you know, they were staring at the ground all the time and kind of not, you know, there was, they were silent. They weren't talking and you could feel the shock. And also they were all, they had all volunteered to go on the rescue mission for this one guy. So, you know, I was kind of taken aback. Like, this guy that had just survived an ambush where they lost a few of their teammates and they were back in the fight and they were willing to go back immediately in the fight. I was like, what are these guys made of? And uh, I remember also uh, we had logistics problems and uh, problems with Washington this time. Uh, we had the greens from Paris, but Washington, we didn't have the, the greens for everything. So we didn't have the green light for everything. So uh, we figured we, we were better off taking uh, two to three hours rest before we, we left uh, in the very early morning for the rescue mission. And I remember they directed us to, the, to this, um, uh, so, you know, temporary uh, shelter where they had their, their bunk beds and stuff. And the guys, uh, from the spec ops uh, went to bed and so there were rooms left um, they were empty and we were looking for rooms to sleep in and like we realized they were the rooms of the guy that had just died or they were missing Oh, geez. and I remember very well the guys going no we're not sleeping there they closed the door and we went to sleep on the floor in the shelter next door because it sounded there was this, like, no one said anything. Well, we just felt, you know, if this guy's dead, I'm, I'm out of respect. I'm not sleeping in his bed. Like, I'm not touching his, his gear. His gear is staying there. If someone touches his gear, it's his teammates. I'm not going near this. So there was kind of this, well, we didn't express it, but it was like, yeah, you know, this it was kind of solemn. It's the middle of the night. We were starving. We didn't know where we were. And we we're all very confused. We know why we were there and what we were going to do. That was perfectly clear. But in this situation, we're like, I'm better off sleeping on the ground than in a, a dead man's bed. Mm. 
So we moved, we went to the other shelter where we, <laughs> remember, we slept. Uh, uh, it was it was fun in the end because you know it, it, you know you kind of make a bit of a you you in these situations where there's a lot of drama uh, you kind of um, uh, you have to have a bit of humor mm. lighting things out so we messed around in the shelter because it was so small and we were maybe seven of us or eight of us on the team and we were all cramped together and so we were all stuck together to sleep. And we slept in our gear and it was fine. We just had a few MREs and it was fine. And the next uh, next morning, we're two to three hours later, we uh, woke up and it was still nighttime, I remember. And we took the helos and we went to where the last, uh, uh, where we had detected the last signal from the um, survival beacon. Uh, mm-hmm. The guys had on them. The Blue Force Tracker. Yeah, Blue yep. Force Tracker, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, the guys uh, had the last position of that and also they scanned the area, the drones that scanned the area uh, to see where if they could find human uh, human signs. So we had a, a few ideas of where to go. So we went onto the signal and I remember uh, the signal was very close to uh, where the ambush had, took, uh, had taken place. And uh, the, during the ambush, I know if, uh, French fighter jets had to do low-pass uh, flights on the area to get the, 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 enemy, uh, the enemies away. And the gunfight at the area, I don't know if, it's, I don't think it's the fighter jets, I'm not sure about this, but I know shots were fired uh, from both sides, of course. And and it, and it's uh, and it actually activated a, a local fire, so the forest was on fire. And by the time we reached there, the whole area, there was a whole area that burned out. And I remember very well; it was night time, and arriving at the area, and there were flames on the horizon. And we were searching for this guy with our NVG, just looking at the ground, just hovering around. At the area with flames all around it was kind of apocalyptic it was it was really weird uh and so we were all like there were maybe we're four or five helos on the area just hovering around uh scanning everywhere and eventually we jumped to another area we didn't find anything we jumped to another area where we we did the drones thought they had they had identified a body and so we landed there and we started searching the whole of the area. We didn't find anything, unfortunately. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so eventually, yeah, we 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 went back up. Uh, we came, went back up onto the helos. Went back to the to the outpost. And uh, and we got a call a few hours later uh, from a local in a video. Oh no! Between times, between times, we regrouped in uh, a bigger French Air Force base in the area. And from there, there were lo- loads of American Special Forces poured in. And uh, and they were, by the time we got there, there were maybe a hundred extra uh, American Special Forces. Yeah, there, there's a whole JSOC package that deployed specifically to recover okay. recover a missing so, American soldier, yeah. How many, how many guys is that? 
Uh, I'm not sure people. exactly how many, but like C-17s with helicopters and, and operators yeah, yeah. like ready to roll. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing at least one or two American aircrafts, uh, C-17s. Maybe I think I think it was two C-17s on the when we landed with the Hilo on the on the on the airfield. There were two C-17s uh, at least, and uh, maybe even extra. I don't know. But I remember those two. And anyway, so yeah, we were grouped there, and I remember uh, planning out to raid the nearby village, mm -hmm. the village that was closest to the ambush. And that's where things kind of got off hand because uh, the Americans obviously were were super eager uh, yeah. to get the guy back. Yeah. And we were like, we were there to help and we were glad to, to chip in. So uh, I remember the briefing uh, with all the guys and um, so all these big American special forces in the in the in the room and we were there also and I remember this one guy uh, probably CIA guy but I remember I don't know why I remember him he had this look he was with dark curly black hair and he, he was in, uh, he had jungle boots and jeans and a shirt. And he had uh, a plate carrier with the, you know, the way Afghans made uh, homemade plate carriers. He had one of those, which above it, his kit was strapped on above it. So it was two different items. And he had this roller helmet. So it wasn't, you know, it was a plastic helmet. It wasn't ballistic. It was a, like an obscure helmet, but, but plastic. And he had this gun. It was a 14-inch, probably 7.62, mm -hmm. with double scopes. Uh, I remember very well, and I was like, ooh, that, that's, that's a bit of a... Uh, an Indiana Jones, it was a, it had this Indiana Jones look, you know, and I found it very exotic. I didn't know who he is, probably a CIA guy or contractor for some, some unit. I don't know. Anyway, it was fun to see all these guys assembled together. And so, uh, briefing took place and the briefing was simple. It was, we're going to raid the whole of the village. And I was like, okay, fine. What does my team do? And uh, they give us the area where suppose uh, every unit had, you know, one, we call it a fuseau in French, the stripe probably. Uh, uh, car door. Like a, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Kind of a car door. A where, you know, yeah. Yeah, sector. Um, and so they gave me my sector and I started counting the houses in the sector. And I remember it was over 100 houses in the sector. And I'm like, we're just the 10 of us. And we'd have a hundred, over a hundred houses to deal with. And the next door team in the next sector had the exact same amount of houses, over a hundred. And so I was thinking, how could this go right? Uh, no, we lost Louis again. We did this on purpose. Uh, and this is the thrill of live TV. Um, 
but we did this on purpose to keep everybody in suspense. I know I am. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, this is the this is just the reality of doing these things live, and uh, and that we're live streaming it. So fuck it, we're going. We'll do it live. Yeah, exactly. We'll. we'll I'm sure Louis will uh, dial back in in a second. It's not his fault. Uh, so yeah, again, next Friday is going to be Nicholas Moore who served in the 75th Ranger Regiment. And then, uh, we're going to have an extra episode on October 3rd with James Laporta, who is a former Marine and a investigative journalist with the Associated Press. And then we have, uh, Tim Weiner coming on the show. He is a, also a journalist. He's the guy who wrote Legacy of Ashes, a sort of seminal history of the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, I read the book. It's uh, pretty fascinating. We'll have him here in studio um, to talk about the book and some other projects he has going on. Uh, Louis is just dialing back in here. Louis, you got you, you, okay. you kept, right. you kept us so, in suspense. Yeah. You said, how can this go right? Right. So you're talking about how you had your sector, the guys to your, to your, other, to your side had their sector, and each one had like 100 yeah. houses in it. Yeah. And uh, so I'm. I'm just realizing. Although we have helos and stuff, this is gonna be. It's gonna be very rough. Like, how, how are we going to do this? And eventually, um, uh, the mission is turned off, and I because we've all died probably on this. But uh, so yeah, the mission is turned off, and they say uh, we got intel. Apparently. They, that in the village, in this very village, one of the guys is an informant for an agency, and they got the information that they found the the American. And uh, so we're all, you know, all very excited, and we're like, "Great, let's go and get him!" And so we hop onto the the, the helos, we head for the village. Uh, on the on, on we do a refueling en route. And during the refueling of the helos, uh, there were a group of Americans there that had organized to stop with the, it was a middle, in the middle of the desert. So there were just a few trucks, uh, fuel trucks gathered together and a pickup with a few Americans in it. And um, so we did the refueling and the Americans are settled there. And we start, start chatting with them while they refuel. And, uh, and at some stage, uh, a guy walks up to us, and it was this uh, team leader from the uh, Spec Ops we knew from the, the base. Comes up to us, says, uh, guys, we're sorry. Uh, plans have changed. We're still going to collect this uh, this American, but he's dead. Yeah. So uh, we're not we're, we're really sorry, but uh, that's uh, how it is. And I remember all these big dudes, big beards, uh, you know, with all the tattoos and looking very manly. And they all started crying and hugging. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, and we were like, we were like kind of in shock. Uh, really sad, uh, really, because we were, uh, we were looking forward to collect this guy because you were thinking you, of him all the time because he was having a real rough time. We didn't know whether he'd been captured or not. So, so yeah, so uh, everyone kind of broke down and, uh, and uh, so we carried on, and eventually we just did the air support for uh, the Americans that landed, and uh, we saw the, the, the them collect the body and uh, lay out the flag and bring him back into the helo and uh, back to his family, uh, I guess. 
So yeah, we just did the escort. We were there all, all, all along just to do the safety of the helo and uh, and what up. So uh, yeah, sad story. Yeah, it it is a sad story. Um, and not to put like a uh, a happy um, you know, bow on it or anything like that, but I I think it's important to point out that the incredible lengths that we will go to repatriate an American soldier, uh, and we were not going to leave that guy behind. You know, that soldier fought till the end. Um, mm. and you know, it's very sad that we were not able to, uh, you know, bring him back alive, but mm. that all of these soldiers were immediately launched from the United States that you were, you know, we called on, on our allies and that the French mm. were able to help us out, um, immediately. Uh, it, it all says a lot about, uh, the coalition that we formed and about the bond that we have, the promise that we have to our teammates mm. that we are not going to leave an American soldier dead or alive we are not going to leave them out there on the battlefield. And so I really appreciate what you did, Louis, and, and what those operators did out there that day um, to bring that soldier back home. Yeah, it was just unfortunate. We did, just didn't get there in time. That's my only regret, really. Uh, you, there's nothing you could have done. He, he was killed in the, in the battle. Um, it, it's, it's oh, no, he was killed in the battle, okay. Yeah, it's, okay. It's, no, it's, no one's, it's the fault of none of, none of you. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, out of, out of our hands, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's that's one of the sad missions I have, uh, amongst others. But uh, I, I enjoy I enjoyed working with the Americans, and uh, they're they're I was really astonished by the courage of the teammates that went right back into battle ready yeah. to fight. You know, yeah, to recover their their teammates. That was really really a lesson for us. Like to see that although they'd lost, they fought, they'd lost some of their teammates. They were back uh, immediately. Uh, and with no, you know, with no, no questions asked, they were just waiting to go back onto the helo, back into the fight. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah, bit of a lesson for us. Sir. The the last thing uh, to to really get on, I I mean, know oh, we've kept you incredibly late, especially late your time in France. Um, but you were deployed to the Middle East, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that deployment differed and what your mission was like there. My deployment to the Middle East wasn't very, I didn't find it very interesting. Uh, it wasn't as interesting as we had uh, in, um, in Africa, really, because uh, it wasn't very, um, it, was a move, it wasn't a moving battle, battleground. Mm -hmm. uh, things didn't move very much, and so it wasn't very interesting. Also, there was a lot of IEDs uh, involved, and that's something I don't, I don't appreciate very much. I mean, it's not that I don't appreciate, but it's, I, I, I hate them. I hate that kind of conflict where you blow up on IEDs. It's just hell. I've, yeah, there was funny stories, though. I remember one of my, one of my friends on another mission in the same area, he, um, when he was driving his SUV, these, you know, big Toyota uh, um, armored SUVs, and uh, I remember him just, uh, um, he told me he drove on the road and he saw something weird on the, in the dirt, in the dirt, like something was emerging from the dirt. He just gave a, a small swerve to the, to the steering wheel and so he just drove around and it was like, nah, that was weird. And he eventually called uh, the guys behind him and told them to stop and he drove on a little more and said, listen guys, there's something weird on the road. Eventually, 
the 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 fusion team came along and it was this big tank you know with the rolling thing and and so he eventually when they reached the area where he saw this weird thing he didn't he didn't drive on because he, he felt something was weird the tank blew up well the, the the thing blew up just in front of the tank and there was actually a, a an id just drove around <laughs> so yeah no i don't really like that that kind of yeah that kind of area no i have uh some questions here from the viewers uh i'll try to get through them pretty quick um yeah danny asked did did he can did you conduct joint ops with uh the foreign legion particularly and i apologize for uh my mispronunciation do yem rep rep. um i know americans are obsessed with foreign legion i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why uh well i know i know they're great guys like i know they're they're elite troops and uh, uh I, some of my mates uh, from the commandos came from uh foreign legion um but i never got to work uh with uh with foreign legion because uh foreign legion is not uh special operations uh they don't work with special operations we we work essentially with uh special operations teams and so we never get to work with these guys i i got to i got to uh to train with some of them like you get to train with some of them and to to meet some because we do uh we we, we jump from the same aircrafts and we do stuff together in same areas but we don't like deploy together because we're not fit to, we're not meant to work together uh although the gcp and especially this the deuxième rep which is a uh, uh, among all the regiments probably one of the best if not the best and the gcp is the small elite of 30 team of 30 guys in the regiment that's what so joel's brothers was in yeah 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 yeah, yeah. do you do the missions like do the does the french government use the foreign legion is their mission set completely different than the rest of the french military not today not today it used to be and it might be in the near future who knows but uh they're not they don't have a a, a different set of missions today uh then they're they have the same missions as the army as conventional army they are conventional army today. Uh -huh. The only thing is they were used by the French. Uh, it's an old tradition we have. It goes out hundreds of years ago. Uh, it really, the, the, the origin, the, the, uh, the genesis of uh, Foreign Legion is mercenaries working for, uh, for the King of France. He just brought them in and called them they were all they were all uh strangers like they were all foreign people foreign. right and they just, they just said right we're taking you in now you can stay foreign but we're taking you into to our army which was very conventional uh like uh, before the 20th century yeah yeah uh, and also there was a, a very strong use of them after second world war where a lot of uh german uh german soldiers fleed from Germany and were and were brought into uh, the Foreign Legion. We used these Foreign Legion, uh, these German 
soldiers in the Foreign Legion. I have uh, loads of stories from these leg uh, Legion guys uh, telling, telling me that all the instructors they used to have, the old guys, <laughs> they all used to talk German in between them. Like they all used to talk German together. They all used to be used to be loads of SS guys. And so they trained the Legion like they used to train the SS units or the um, the conventional German army. Yeah. So that's also uh, what's quite rich. What's interesting with the Legion is that they get the best of all the guys they get to to to, to gather. Yeah, there there is there is an American fascination with the Legion for sure. Dave, if you pull up the questions on yeah, Patreon, I please. Um, no, no, the Patreon questions. Oh, the Patreon questions. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Danny asks, "Have you ever served with any graduates of Ecole Polytechnique?" Ecole Polytechnique. Yeah, I have. Yeah, that's our our MIT. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Scott says, uh, saw a video that the French military is able to get a lot for how little they spend. Any insight into how they do this and the pros and cons? Yeah, well, um, French uh, budget has, has dwindled in the last year, has diminished a lot. And the last year, uh, the defense budget has diminished a lot. We still managed to keep a kind of a, 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 a baseline for the budget that's quite high in comparison with other European countries, because uh, we're still waging war, because we're still sending people out to Mali, to Middle East, and elsewhere. So that helps us, that helps the Ministry of Defense uh, to justify the budgets, of course, that's how it works. Uh, but then I have to admit uh, that French military are particularly good uh, for human in in human intelligence and i'm going to be perfectly frank in what i'm going to say because it's going to concern the americans we work very well with the americans in uh, middle east and africa why because that's my opinion and please forgive me it's offensive but it's my opinion the french are very good at gathering human intelligence because they have this they have a way of dealing with populations that's very, they, they, they mix very easily. The French mix very easily with local populations. Like, for instance, in the uh, French bases in Africa, uh, you have every Thursday, you have locals that come into the base to sell artifacts, to sell uh, stuff they make. Uh, all the locals can come into the hospital could, to get uh, to get fixed. Um, so the whole hospital is almost open to all the population uh, locally. So these are little things that help us mix with the population. And also, where as I said earlier, uh, the all these African areas, even Middle East, are areas where we've hung out for years, if not hundreds of years. And so people get to know the area mm -hmm. and, and so are used to people. And so that's how we manage to gather uh, human intelligence very well. That... The Americans can't get that as well. Uh -huh. It's hard. Yeah. Because Americans stick out. Yeah. Usually. Like you can, you can tell American in an airport, you can tell who's American <laughs> usually. Uh, and so they stick out and not very, they're not very good 
at uh, mixing of populations. And so where that comes out handy is that French get human resources uh, quite easily, whereas Americans get technical uh, intelligence, technical resources uh, very well, uh, very handy. They have them very handy because NSA, because uh, all these uh, intelligence services that work very well for the Americans because it's very technical. And we don't have them as well. Ours are not, are far away more, far away less developed than the Americans have them. I don't know if I'm clear. In what yeah, I'm yeah. It's, a, it's a cultural efficacy, really, uh, that, that you're so yeah, embedded yeah. in so many, they call it France Afrique for, for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, that, which leads into, um, John Pierre has a question. Uh, what are your impressions of fresh in, French intelligence? There seems to have been shortfalls, particularly highlighted during the climax of ISIS's reign of terror. I, I don't know exactly what he's talking about there. Maybe he's talking about Beslan. Oh, yeah. No, Beslan is in Russia, no? Uh, the massacre of Beslan is in... The schools. Is that not the... Yeah, it's the, the school schoolhouse. The hostage safety. Uh, uh, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry. What, what, uh, what's yeah. the, the, no, ma okay. the massacre uh, that I'm talking about that took place Oh, yeah, in it's Bataclan. Thank you. Bataclan, yeah, that's it. Yeah, now, these are two different issues because... Um, uh, just like in America, you have the FBI for domestic threats and you have CIA for external threats, right? Mm -hmm. Well, France is kind of orchestrated the same way. Like you have DGSI, that's for the interior. I stands for interior. And DGSE, E stands for exterior. So it's quite easy to remember. And both of those services uh, work uh, in intelligence to protect French people and French interests. The problem is uh, they don't communicate very well because historically, uh, well, that's a complicated issue, but uh, intelligence services don't work together because if they work together, they can also become a bit of a threat for It diminishes their value, yeah. Yeah, and also diminishes their value. And if you have different services, uh, it encourages in uh, emulation. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It helps them fight to get the best in intel. Yeah, uh, and so you have a number of, of services in France, uh, and they all fight to get the best intel. And every morning, the president has his briefing, and uh, I know that in the briefing, all the services are there, and <laughs> they all fight. To, they they have a a small uh, box of information they can hand over and i think there are uh, in every morning briefing there are three boxes with one box boxed in red which is the main information you have to remember today and they all fight to have their information boxed in red in the morning briefing of the president i know it's a fight that happens every morning and that's okay. very important uh, to understand so it helps having the best information possible because you all, you know, they all fight to get the best intel possible. But on the on the downside is that don't communicate very much. Yeah. Because communicating is giving intel, and right. intel is their main resource. Right. Right. Like intelligence services live around the intel. Like it's not about budget. It's not about the number of people they have. It's not about the actions they've led. It's about who has the best intel at the best moment. That's the main goal. And so. If they share it, then 
they're useless. I've seen it before. I've seen services fight to steal uh, Intel from one service <laughs> to the other. Like in a good way, like it's, it's, a, it's a fair fight, but it, it does happen. Well, I mean, we, we, I don't want to say we had, because I don't know if we still have, but w- like we have the Directorate of National Intelligence for exactly that yeah. same reason, because of 9-11, because there was not intelligence sharing going on. You know, yeah. like it, it's well, uh, it, since people have their, 11, they're trying to, to mix like they I know they've they've set up uh, uh, organizations for the different uh, uh, different agencies to talk in, you know, together about these uh, domestic and foreign threats that are sometimes the same, like just like for Bataclan, as you said, yeah. Bataclan is a, a terrorist threat that was domestic, but that was organized from the outside right so you have to identify outside what's going to happen inside right and you have to follow it up as it goes inside and i know uh, that you know dgsc uh they can't work on uh they, there's loads of problems like uh, legal problems and it's the same for americans i know yeah it's that you can't dgsc cannot uh work on french people in France. Right. The separation of church and state. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's the exactly. same for the CIA. The same with CIA. Yeah. Uh, so that's a bit of an issue because I mean, they can't have the follow up. Like, as soon as they have, a, if they find a French guy training with ISIS, let's say in Syria, and they find him outside, they follow him up. If he switches and, and let's say they lose him and he goes by Turkey and enters the European Union and he ends up in France. They can't, they don't have the means, because they're not allowed, they don't have the means to intercept that guy in France. Right. If they hand over to the GSI, mm-hmm. the whole package. Right. This is where he's from, this is where he trained, this is why he did it. Right. And they don't like that, because right. that's handing over files. <laughs> right. And they don't hand over files. Right. They, they can't just say, you guys need to watch them. They need to give them why they need to watch them. They need to give them the exactly, entire package. the whole story. Yeah. And they don't like that. Yeah. What they like to do is give orders. Yeah. And say the DGSC will say to DGSI, look after for this guy. The DGSI will say why? And they'll say none of your business. Right. And they're like, well, fuck you. Yeah. I'm not looking after this guy. Yeah. Uh, Danny uh, asks, why do so many U.S. military terms have French etymology? For example, battalion, regiment, revelry, sergeant, lieutenant, etc. I. Uh, you have any thoughts on that, Louis? Absolutely. Because France ruled the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah, the, the, the French influence uh, in, in their support for the American Revolution yeah. in Lafayette. Um, probably. I, I don't know. I'm not. That's, I, I, that's Louis XIV. It's Louis XIV, Louis XIV. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that did most of it, like did 90% of, of what we know today. And French, like, uh, you know, the way uh, Americans weaponize the dollar. With the dollar is a weapon. Yeah. It's used as a weapon by the American government. And, well, the same way they use culture, like with Hollywood, and the same way uh, they use the language. Language is part of culture, and you can weaponize it. Mm-hmm. And I know France in the 17th century, uh, they weaponized the language and made it the the main language everyone had to use. That's why 
there are so many French words in the English language. And it's not just in the military, like it's in everything. Like a lot of, I mean, it's, there are two diff, totally different languages. Right. Like it's a Latin and a Germanic, Germanic language, uh, but uh, English is Germanic and, and French is Latin. But there still is loads of words. I know to have looked it up before, I, can't, I don't have the numbers anymore, but I know loads of words from uh, English language come from French. And the same way today, uh, loads of French people are talking with English words in their everyday life. Yeah. Because well, English has been weaponized. Yeah. I, I, well, and I mean, French, I don't know if it still is considered, but for, for the longest time, it was considered the language of diplomacy. Like it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, like if it you still were, is in theory. It is. Yeah. It is. It is in theory. Like yeah. in, in United Nations, I think they, they, the official international language is French. Yeah, yeah, we uh, get to learn fun French words in political science. Reprochement, these types of terms. Very good, very uh -huh. good. Uh, Jackson asks, "What was your impression of uh, one R P I M A S A S G I G N in Action Division? Is there not a rivalry between the units?" Of course, there is. <laughs> I mean, how how can there be? Right, there always is. Like the same way, there's rivalry in in different units in our, in, in our in units. America. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely, there is everywhere. All these units are 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 made of guys that have character. Because to go in a spec ops unit, you have to have character. Fast through tests, tests to survive in the group, you have to have a bit of character. And if you have character, you create rivalry. That's how it works. Yeah. Dave, what do you got there? So, uh, Isaac, I'm going to ask two of your questions. Um, let me uh, choose two of them. Um, uh, did Louis, uh, Louis ever encounter a truly random operators in Sahil, like the the Wagner Group, Australian PMCs? Anybody? Were there people out there that were just kind of out on the fringe? Uh, no. Not that I can remember, no. And um, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan has had strong impact on veterans in America. Uh, how has it affected French specs? Oh, this is, spec ops this is a good question veterans. to um, bring up your post-service life with veteran service organizations too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people are questioning today uh, the government and the politics we're leading because the way, the same way you're leaving, the Americans are leaving Afghanistan. Uh, we've left Afghanistan uh, 10 years before, but we're leaving Sahel today. And we're leaving all we've done over there uh, to, to make the area secure. So there's the same kind of disgust in, 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 in a, lot of, uh, a lot of military people, especially those that have, loved, that have lost you know uh, family and friends uh it's particularly harsh on them uh and so yeah that's 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 very hard uh, but yeah so sorry but you were saying yeah jack uh, about the the veterans organization and um, that's what i do today indeed yeah i i work uh, with uh, i work for a veterans organization that works for all the young uh, new veterans that France is, is having at the moment. 
since France has had a long tradition of veteran organizations since uh, because of Afghanistan, not Afghanistan, but because of uh, Algeria and war and the China war. Uh, and we're going to renew this uh, today with all the guys that did Afghanistan, Mali, and Syria, and all those all those areas. Did you know when Americans came home from uh, Vietnam, they they weren't they didn't have a great reception. the The public was generally, you know, in general against the war, and not just the war, but the the soldiers involved with the war did. Did French soldiers in Indochina, did, did they have the, did France have the same sort of reaction to them or was it viewed differently? Um, it's very peculiar because uh, uh, France has had a long uh, history of, of, uh, of combatants, of soldiers. Of, France has, has had any any number of wars uh, on its ground and and also outside in colonies and so it's not new for France so there wasn't any trauma with war but there was uh, well to my mind uh, there was a, uh, I th- and I think you talked about this with uh, uh, the Canadian interviewer. Yeah, you had the Canadian uh, the JTF two operator. Yeah, and uh, he he talked he talked about this because the Legion Fire Legion was oh that was Joel, Joel Struthers. I'm sorry, that's Joel. Oh yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah. but uh, uh, when for instance for Algeria, there was this. I, I think it was the same for under China, and it was the same for Vietnam. There were two uh, wars going on. There was the the war, the physical war going on. There was a guerrilla war that was terrible uh, in all of these countries that was led by communists or Islamists, depending on, on where you're talking. But it was always the same war. It was guerrilla war. Uh, and there was a second war going on every time. And that took place uh, in America or in France. And that was a war on the public opinion. Right. It was a war on the population to tell the population that the war it was leading was wrong, was dreadful, was horrible. They shouldn't do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of a more psychological warfare, really. And I know very well the case of Algeria because I, I studied it a bit. And Indochina is the same. Uh, the Algerian war uh, were, uh, was, was military won by uh, the French military. Like they won the, uh, a guerrilla warfare, which was uh, maybe the only one that was won in the 20th century. The problem was, since the enemies of France that were, uh, we call them uh, Algerian rebels, since they saw, they understood they were losing this war, uh, they used um, psychological warfare on the French population in France to make them feel the war that was waged in Algeria was unfair, was uh, horrible, uh, and 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 should not happen, and unjust on the population, and that's where the politics kicked in, and obeyed the public opinion. Well, not obeyed, went in the same direction as the public opinion, and in the end said, you know, uh, Algeria is going back to the Algerians, and we're leaving them independent. 
that in and among other other uh, reasons because it was also in the 60s where all the all the colonies were being becoming independent also so it's not the only reason but it was one of the reasons that pushed that helped the rebel uh, Algerian rebels to get uh, to get through was that psychological warfare uh, that helped them yeah and it was the same in Indochina yeah I mean we we see it now even I mean there there's a, a massive in at least in America there's like an accusation against soldiers like waging war against brown people it's like well we fought beside those people who wanted to keep their countries free like it wasn't just you know this nationalistic kind of let's just tell these people what to believe you got any more patreon questions uh no more patreon questions but something has come up on in the chat that Uh we have to address uh and it's come up a number of times and people want to know are you really French or are you an Irishman on the run? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth. I am from the IRA, but I've trying to I've been trying to hide this for years. <laughs> you but but a number of people have mentioned that your your accent sounds very Irish. Yeah, I might have a I might have a an Irish origin, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Just just a scooch. Yeah. Well, Louis, uh, you're awesome, man, because uh, you're over in Europe and we have kept you up late, way past your bedtime. And no problem. I, it was a great pleasure talking to you guys. I really I really appreciate it, man. And this was like an amazing eye opening interview. And I think our audience is also going to be similarly uh, illuminated by it. So really appreciate your time on a, on a Friday evening. And um, we hope to talk to you again real soon. Um, and yeah. any, any final things? I mean, your book, the link is down in the description for our French readers out there. Um, hey, and if you're an English reader and you've ever thought about trying to learn French, this is the perfect book for you. Don't it's, written by, <laughs> it's written by a military man, so you know you can, you know you can handle it. Don't read French. Yeah. You will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, is there anything else you want to plug, Louis, the, the, the not-for-profit not for uh, veterans organization you work for, anywhere you want to direct people? Uh, no, not yet, because we're still we're still building okay. the the organization. Okay. So it's going to be set up soon. But uh, no, 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 not yet. Not Once yet. that's up, please let us know, and we will we will gladly plug yeah. it. We would love mm-hmm. to. Thank you very much. It's very kind. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Louis. Have a good night. Louis, and, thanks uh, so much. All right. Thank we, you will, very much, guys. We'll great see. To you. We'll see all you guys uh, next Friday uh, with Nicholas Moore. So take care. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.